Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BBFFT. The Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. It occurred to me today a lot of time talking to myself. I do. In the course of my day, as I'm prepping for the radio show, um, I don't have a an audience of people other than like maybe occasionally the seven-year-old, the nine-year-old, the family dogs, plural. It's a whole nother story. And uh, a lot of the discussion that uh, that I have as I'm speaking to myself is obviously about sports. And it's about the good parts of sports. And I have found in recent weeks that we have talked a lot about the ugly part of sports. The stuff that starts to feel too much like regular life. Death, taxes, realignment, you know, all that stuff. The influence of television. Don't even get me started. Don't get me started on TV. I'm not a big fan of uh, what television has done to uh, to our sports. Messing it up. Ruining the calendar. Messing up uh, people, families that want to be season ticket holders that just can't commit because... They don't want to be on Interstate 5 at like midnight on a Saturday night. Not where they want to be spending their midnight. That kind of stuff really ticks me off. And so the good part of sports is the competition. It's the part that uh, reminds me that when I was a kid growing up in the Bay Area, you know, I, I didn't pick teams that were winners. And I really didn't have a choice because I was more of a be loyal to your soil type of sports fan. I rooted for what was near to me, you know, and I had a choice because growing up in the Bay Area at the time I grew up, you had the Raiders in the East Bay and you had the Niners on the other side. And you had, uh, you know, a choice of being an Oakland A's fan or a San Francisco Giants fan. Everybody was a Warriors fan and it wasn't a good thing. These weren't like the fun Warriors with Steph Curry and Draymond Green and winning championships and Steve Kerr coaching him. These were um, Al Adels Warriors, Joe Barry Carroll. Um, and, uh, and in leaner years, Chris Washburn uh, getting drafted. And, oh, when they picked Todd Fuller, how excited everybody was. It You know, there were some really bad years being a Warriors fan. And then all of a sudden it got cool. And I don't know how much fun it was after it got cool. And um, somebody emailed me today and and said – Hey, you know, and I, and I can't even remember the sports teams that, that he picked growing up, but they were all kind of underdog teams. And I and it dawned on me that my teams were underdogs too. They weren't winners. The San Francisco Giants of my childhood were not winners. They were not the Giants that went to multiple World Series. They were not the Giants who often got multiple players in the All-Star game. These were Giants that threatened to lose 100 games in a season. Johnny LaMaster at shortstop. Uh, Mike Ivey. Playing in the infield, Daryl Evans. You know he he could he could really hit. That was about it. Jack Clark came along, and you know it was those Giants, Chili Davis and center field Giants. It was uh, you know Bob Melvin behind the plate after Bob Brenly, San Francisco Giants. You know the Giants I'm talking about. They were 
They were charming. They were lovable. Sometimes they had all-star players. They, you know, we had Vita Blue out on the mound, but well past his prime. It wasn't Vita Blue of the 1970s. We got Vita Blue of the mid-'80s. Uh, it was Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan did a stint in a San Francisco Giants uniform. I'll never forget Joe Morgan with that flap, kind of flapping nervously at home plate with his elbow, uh, wearing number eight, uh, hitting a home run on the final day of, I believe it was the 1982 season, to, to knock the Dodgers out of the, uh, out of the playoffs. That, you know, that was our joy when we knocked other teams out of the playoffs. But it wasn't Joe Morgan of the Big Red Machine. It was Joe Morgan late in his career. Uh, and my 49ers, they did have success in my childhood. I was 11 years old when Joe Montana hit Dwight Clark in that right corner of the end zone. And uh, I went running out. My parents uh, had these sliding doors in their living room. We had a backyard that uh, backed up to uh, like a bunch of uh, fields and hills. And I went running out that sliding door and uh, was whooping it up in the backyard as the 49ers ran out the clock eventually against the Dallas Cowboys and won that NFC championship game and went on to play in the Super Bowl and win it. But before that, they were 2-14 and 14 two years earlier. And I loved them just the same. And then they were 7-9. and nine. I loved them just the same. And then they go on to the Super Bowl and win it all, and all of a sudden they were uh, fashionable. And, oh, the West Coast offense and all that stuff. And, and it, it dawned on me today as I was having one of these deep conversations about sports with myself that I grew up rooting for teams that were not very good, and I loved them. I loved rooting for them. And maybe as a Blazer fan in today's world, you relate to this. You relate to the struggle that the organization is going through. It does uh, remind me a little bit of the struggle that we all have internally. Like That's what life is. Life is a struggle against your limitations, right? Uh, we're all sort of dealing with that on a daily basis. And, and it, it just occurred to me, maybe for the first time in my life today, that I picked teams and I rooted for teams that weren't very good, that, you know, they weren't like the Cubs and lovable losers, but they weren't winners. And once they got good, because eventually, cyclically, your sports team should every once in a while, knock on wood, Portland, uh, every once in a while, cyclically, your franchise should come back into being fashionable and enjoy a nice run. That's what sports are built on. It's the ebbs. It's the flows. It's why you see the Warriors going all in with Chris Paul, putting him in that second unit. What are they doing? Have they lost their minds? He's too old. He can't play anymore. What they're banking on is that he can be in position uh, to be with that second unit and and uh, create a, uh, a an advantage for the Golden State Warriors and give them some depth. And they thought, well, it was the best deal that they could get. And it was the best deal on the table, and they took it. They jumped at it. Um, but once my sports teams got good, once my 49ers started really winning, and I'm talking more about the Steve Young later years and the Niners getting around the Super Bowl and playing at a high level, I still love rooting for them. But i got to be honest with you, I looked around, I saw a lot of other people who were not rooting for my team all those years, suddenly in the Bay Area especially, bunch of bandwagon front runners wearing San Francisco 49ers jackets, brand new 49ers hats, um, rooting for the San Francisco Giants when they were winning World Series every other year. Uh, the Warriors especially now, it's become a little bit obnoxious. You go to the Bay Area, I've covered Warriors games. I look around, I'm like, where were these people? Where were these people back in the day when I was here inside the Oakland Coliseum? 
no longer are the Warriors even playing in that uh, in that building. It's a different operation. I want to hear from you. I want to hear about the teams you root for, the teams that you have chosen to invest your disposable income and your hopes and your dreams. And have you drawn any conclusions about that? Like, tell me who you root for and why. 503-417-7575. I want to hear from Stephen. I want to hear from Judah a little bit on today's show because I want you to kind of do that examination. Like, sometimes we pick the teams we see and like I said, I was loyal to my soil. Like I didn't, I didn't become like a Dallas Cowboy or a Pittsburgh Steeler fan in in the 1970s and in early 80s. That would have been a lot easier on me. I was a Niner fan, and I was a Niner fan because the choices for me were Raiders or Niners, and I just aligned more with, uh, you know, I wasn't an East Bay guy, and so I found myself at Candlestick Park for both the Niners and the Giants games more often than I was at the Oakland Coliseum. I was at the Oakland Coliseum very infrequently, although they weren't that far apart. 503-417-7575, who do you root for and why? Let's unpack that. And what do we make of these bandwagon fans? Like some people will say, hey, it's great, the more the merrier. I get it, I understand. If we have bandwagon fans, it means that, you know, the teams are winning. But I also think, like, you know, if you're an Oregon or an Oregon State fan, you both won 10 games last football season. Are you welcoming everybody? Like Oregon fans, if you go, let's say you go 11 and 1 or 12 and 0 in the regular season. Or Oregon State, you go 11 and 1 or 12 and 0 in the regular season. You look around, come Pac-12 championship time, you're going to see a lot of brand new Beaver and brand new Duck fans and new gear. Are you okay with that? Because I've literally seen people that are my neighbors, not now, but over the years my neighbors who have shown up, I, I believe them to be diehard Beaver fans, and I see them when Oregon's playing in the national championship game against Auburn, at the stadium wearing duck gear. Or I see them, as Oregon State's going on a tear last season, hanging out the Beaver flag in, in the front yard. Like, I'm okay with that, but are you, and what does that say about our society? Steven, I want to know about the teams you root for and why. Tell me about this. Yeah, so uh, the, the Blazers would be my, you know, the ultimate team that I root for, you know, growing up in the area. It's the only professional sports team around. So that's kind of my thing. Uh, back in the day was always, you know, went to a couple Blazer games back when I was little. Uh, I remember rooting for the Houston Rockets as well. I always liked Hakeem Olajuwon. Okay, I thought he okay. Was... unpack that. Uh, that. That's the one I want to unpack. Yeah. Why so, the Rockets? Um, I, I, you know, I was just a little guy, and I loved the way Hakeem Olajuwon played with all his fakes and the dream shake and all that kind of stuff. And then they were really good. And so I was like six, seven years old. And I was like, well, I want to root for one of these teams that's, you know, in the in the finals when Michael Jordan retired. And it was Hakeem Olajuwon and the Rockets. And so I kind of just, you know, rode with the Rockets and Hakeem for a little bit in a while. And uh, it was just because they were good. Like, I, I was one of those bandwagon fans as a little kid. And then uh, once, you know, I got a little bit older, I realized, yeah, you know, I'm going to root for the Blazers. And that's going to be my team. And I did the same thing in football as well. Like, you know, having no professional team here, it was 93, Cowboys taking on the Bills. And I remember I was six years old, or I was just about to turn six. Maybe I was five, just about to turn six. And I said to my brother, I said, you know what? I'm going to choose my favorite team, whoever wins this game. That's what I'm going to do. And it was the Cowboys, Emma Smith. And so then I ended up liking the Cowboys, Emma Smith. And then as I got older, I really disliked all of the players on the team when I realized they had Tony Romo and Terrell Owens. And I decided, well, I can't like this team anymore. So it was for me, it was mostly bandwagon stuff. And then as I got older, it's been more of like players. So right now, you know, it's it's the Blazers. And, you know, really for college, I would be more of a beaver than a duck, but it's not 
you know, any big thing, any big reason why. I just, I don't really like the Duck fans a lot of times that I talk to. So wait, wait, wait. It's more the fans. It's more the fans, yeah. Not the program. Yeah, it's more the fans than the program. Uh, they're a little little obnoxious, I think, in my mm. mind, sometimes the people I talk to. But, but uh, maybe- isn't, it, isn't the same thing you dislike, the kind of the bandwaggy yeah. feel, isn't that kind of what you're doing? I was as a kid <laughs> when I was six. <laughs> Now that I'm 36, I choose uh, just right. based on what what I use what I'm betting on. So right now, it's, <laughs> now it's the Blazers and what I bet on. But before when I was a kid, I think it's okay when you're when you're just learning about sports to be rooting for one of the best teams. Like my kids would be, you know, they can root for the really good teams if they want to because they just want to get into it, right? And then as they get older, you got to just put in their mind, yeah, you know what, this is it. You know, you're, you're from Portland, you're in Oregon, you should like the Blazers. You just do the Ducks or the Beavers if you want to do that. Like you can't choose both. It's you gotta tell them the rules. You gotta tell them what's up. But I think when, as a little kid, it's okay. Then as you get older, you kind of gotta choose what you're gonna do. It's funny because in as I grew up, we didn't have games on TV all over the place. And in fact, in baseball, it wasn't until the All Star Game or the game of the week with Joe Garciola on Saturdays and Mel Allen. And how about that? Yeah, it wasn't until like Saturday that we got a chance to see like the Brewers play. You know, you could get your local team. And then came the advent of cable television, and WGN gave us the Cubs, and TBS gave us the Atlanta Braves, and then all of a sudden all my friends were Cubs fans and Braves fans. And so I think you you probably don't even realize it, Stephen, but you were heavily influenced by television, and television was putting those great teams, and Hakeem Olajuwon and those great teams on TV right in front of you. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's... You know, when you're gonna watch the big games and like, you know, if my dad's gonna watch the NBA finals and I'm a little kid, I'm watching what's on TV. And then I you know, as a fan and a competitor, like I'm just gonna choose a team and I'm gonna root for them. And I see that in my kids now when they watch sports, they could watch any sport. It could be hockey, it could be pickleball, it could be anything. They pick a team and they root for it like they are diehard fans. And I think that is it is very interesting because you're right. It's just what's on TV, and that's what we choose, and that's what we like, and it can define our whole fandom as we grow up. And it's very interesting to see, you know, as we talk about all these media rights type of things, like how important linear TV can be when it comes to sports. And I think that's the one thing that linear TV has going forward is you need to watch sports live. Like it's more important yeah. that way. So it is interesting to see that, you know, Thinking about it when you told me that, yeah, yeah, you know, it was I chose the Rockets and Hakeem because they were on TV when I was watching the game. So they were on TV yeah. in front of you, and the Braves and the Cubs did it first, and they did it well. But I want to hear from our listeners 503 417 7575. Tell me who you root for and why. My grandfather, uh, my Italian grandfather, he loved a winner, okay? And he grew up in, you know, obviously Im- immigrant from Italy, his family immigrated. He grows up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And he becomes a New York Yankee fan in baseball. He liked the Pirates, but he would go to Yankee Stadium occasionally if he could get to New York, and he would see the Yankees play, and he liked the Yankees because they were a winner. It was a brand. And he became a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And then, But later, because we lived in the Bay Area, he was a huge Steelers fan until the Niners started winning. And then he was a Niner fan. And, he was a, like, and we always joke about it, like, you know, in our family, like, he just loved a winner. He wanted to be on the winning side, and I, I kind of understand it. He rooted for Jack Nicklaus and Tom Watson, and those were his guys in golf, and he rooted for the Yankees in baseball, and you know he, he would go see a Giants game, but you know the Yankees were his team because the Yankees were winners. Well, let's go to the phone lines. Mark is in Portland. Uh, Mark, uh, who do you root for and why? Uh, well, you already know the answer to this question. Uh, the immaculate reception 
I was probably, I think I was 12 years old, and that turned me into a Steelers NFL. I was already really into football, but I became a freak after after that as far as football. And it just that I was a Steeler fan uh, because of that. And, you know, I just think I would, I think, us old guys were blessed because in the 60s, John, we saw two of the greatest dynasties ever in the Green Bay Packers. Every Everybody I hung out with back then was a Green Bay Packer fan or a Dallas fan. You, there was really nobody else. And uh, the Celtics in, in basketball. So I fell in love in the 60s, though, with the Cardinals because I felt they had the best all-around outfield I'd ever seen with Kirk Flood, Lou Brock, and Orlando Cerpeda. And, and Bob Gibson as a pitcher, and yep. you know it was, that was the sport in the '60s. Baseball was more popular than football. So. Do you remember when I had Franco Harris on the show years ago? I do, I yeah. do. I I got a quick story about Franco. I I uh, uh, saw him uh, in the Vegas airport, and I was with a buddy of mine, and he was like 15 feet away, and I just started going, "The ball is caught out of the air by Franco Harris." <laughs> he just looked at me and pointed to me. You know, and, and smiled yeah. and waved. It was a great moment. So it was, never, a, it was an amazing play. I'll never forget how he started his interview. I'm just going to play this. Hello, Portland. That's how he started. He, and I was like, <laughs> Franco's no dummy. Franco gets it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, Franco Harris. I got to I gotta pull that interview up and pull some snippets from it. It was a great interview with a, with a legend. Uh, all right, who do, you, who do you root for and why? I want to know. 503-417-7575. Let's go to Bob in Portland. Bob, welcome. Uh, thank you, John. Who do you so root I'm for? A, uh, I grew up in Ohio, mostly, about halfway between, not in a small town, halfway between Cleveland and Cincinnati. And in high school, all my buddies that I hung with were Browns fans, so I became a Browns fan. That was during the Brian Sight and Greg Pruitt cardiac kid era. And I've been a diehard Browns fan ever since. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, has it been, been difficult? Long, it's been a tough road, buddy. Let me yeah. tell you. Tough road. Yeah. And let me ask you this. Like, all right. Yeah. And maybe this is more of a question for the room and Judah as well. Like, because Judah, you grew up a Seahawks fan. And you and I'm going to gather because you saw them. And there were a lot of lean years for the Seahawks. And then there were suddenly some good years. Did it bother you? And I, I and I'm thinking about the Cleveland Browns. Did it bother you when suddenly everybody was a Seahawks fan for a while there? No question about it, for sure. My dad's a 49er fan, and I have a older brother who was a 49er fan as well. The only reason I'm not a Niner fan is because my older brother didn't want me to be. He said, "This That's is so mean. I know. That is so mean. Right cool. well, to you, it's the most <laughs> blessed thing that ever happened to me. No, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, I, of course, when people got on the Seahawks bandwagon, it rubbed me the wrong way because, like, Rick Meyer was my first quarterback, and you know John Kitna, and you know losing at the Meadowlands to a Vinny Testaverde quarterback sneak on fourth and goal when he was clearly down at the half yard line at best." And this was before instant replay. So they ruled it a touchdown. And the Seahawks missed the playoffs as a result in their AFC days. Like, that that's the seeds of my Seahawk fandom. And when everybody jumped on board in 2005, that was one thing. But then when they really jumped on board in the Russell Wilson era, I, I tried not to mind it as well. But I'd be lying if it didn't rub me the wrong way at least a little bit. Did it make you not want to be a Seahawks fan as much? Or was it just annoyance that everybody else was there? No, the only thing that didn't make me want to be a Seahawks fan as much 
was Malcolm Butler. <laughs> Sorry. I will I, that took me to a place as a sports fan that I I don't care to go back to, and it definitely put sports fandom in perspective again. There, yeah. The other yeah. day, I pulled up the the Seahawks loss to the Steelers in the Super Bowl with Judah. We were just talking about it, and I pulled yeah. it up, and that's when I realized like what a fan he is of the Seahawks. I mean, we were watching nice. some of the yeah. controversial plays, John. He was getting so frustrated. Again, it's twenty years ago, and he's just he, he's watching like he was live, complaining at the refs. It was. It was a great sight to see. I had a great time. I was at that game. Uh, it was uh, it was in Detroit. Is that right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know Jerome Bettis is from Detroit. Also, <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Ford Field. Um, yeah, but you were in the Super Bowl. Like I had to feel pretty good. Like as a <laughs> yeah. fan that, you know, you, she actually didn't win anything. You know, it was Steve Largent. You know, well, he was really cool. And then that was it. That's all the Seahawks had going for him for a while. You know, if you were a fan of a team as a kid. Does it matter if they are really good or not? Because the Seahawks were pretty bad there for a while, and yet I was still a Seahawk fan. I'm yeah. starting to wonder, like, how important is a team's success to a kid still be still rooting for them? Yeah, I I wonder if the if it is at all to kids, except yeah. that you get par- parental influence. That I think, you know, parents tend to emphasize the winning and the losing. I the Niners. I it struck me as absurd. As I look back and I realize I lived and died with a team that went two and fourteen, and I watched every game, and I wore their gear, and I was in, and I and I don't really recall. I was only eight or nine years old, but I don't really recall them being two and fourteen except on paper, and and I look back and I go, gosh, there must have been something there that I saw, and you know, Paul Hofer at running back, and they had O.J. Simpson for for a spell, you know, and it was like. I don't know what I was rooting for. To that point, though, John, like I remember when the Blazers went through their rough patch, and I remember getting free tickets all the time for my dad's work, and there was something special about it. Like there was nobody in the crowd. Like me and my brother going there. Like it's something special about when the team is actually down that you can really fall in love with that team. And then when they get good, it's like wow. Like I went through the hard times, and it was worth it. Like there, you are right. There is something about it. Like I don't know what it is. But man, sometimes when your team is really bad, like that's when you really fall in love with them. Yeah, because I I think you're you're struggling. Like 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 getting up and I look back and you know somebody asked me one time, would you would you ever want to go back and go back through elementary school and go back through high school? And I'm like, no. Like I did that once. Like I wouldn't want to go back and do it because you know you don't know what's happening. You're looking around. You're kind of making it up as you go as a kid. You're you know that's all new and wondrous to you, but. Man, my sports team felt the same way. It felt like it was making it up as it was going along, too. So I look at it and I go, hey, we were in it together at that point. And I, I lived and died with it. 503-417-7575 is a number. We'll take more of your phone calls. Punch it audios ahead on tomorrow's show. Little sneak peek. Keep this between us. Scott Barnes, the athletic director at Oregon State, will be joining us tomorrow. I have so many questions about Oregon State, where they're headed, what they're going to do, what is their plan. Scott Barnes will be with us on tomorrow's show. We're going to talk about DJ Uyangalele, the Oregon State quarterback, uh, coming up at 4 o'clock with Nick Daschle, who covers the team. Scott Barnes, Oregon State AD, on tomorrow's show. Uh, We'll talk about the Ducks, Bo Nix, as uh, one of the key factors, of course, to this Oregon season. But I have a bigger factor for Oregon. I'll share that in hour three today, is I think there's a bigger factor than Bo Nix uh, to Oregon's success. I think, it, in fact, it's something nobody's talking about. Um, Stephen, during the commercial break, you mentioned uh, that Utah may have a problem at quarterback. Their season opener is uh, coming up, uh, is it two weeks from tomorrow or Thursday? Two weeks from uh, Thursday. Thursday. Two weeks from Thursday. Yeah. 
Two weeks from Thursday, they host Florida at Rice-Eccles Stadium. I'll be on the scene. We will have the scene from Rice-Eccles Stadium on this radio show because it's a big game in the conference. But uh, what's going on with their backup quarterback? Now, Cam Rising had ACL surgery in the offseason. There's some question about whether he will be healthy for that game. Their backup quarterback now seemingly injured. Yeah, so uh, you know this isn't confirmed because Utah does not confirm injuries or anything. So even if Cam Rising doesn't play against Florida, I'd, I would still be shocked if he's not warming up on the field just to try to trick him. But uh, the backup Brandon Rose, he had a uh, he had a message on social media that basically said he's he's been released from the hospital now, but he's going to make a full recovery. Um, but a lot of people that were saying at the practice he got injured uh, pretty badly and will be out for weeks, maybe even months. And so it could be Bryson Barnes, who did play in the Rose Bowl a little bit, but he would be the Thurston quarterback. And uh, Kyle Whittingham actually confirmed that today, that right now uh, Barnes would be the number one guy if they were to play today. And Thanks before sure. before Brandon Rose, uh, he had confirmed that he would have been the backup quarterback. So uh, Utah, depending on what Cam Rising's status is, could be on their third-string quarterback come week one. Cam Rising's going to play in that game. I, just, I, I watched him play pickleball at Pac-12 Media Day. He was jumping around. He and Caleb Williams were playing pickleball. Like, you can't tell me he's not going to be on the field and be ready. But, but, I mean, ACL surgery, I mean, that happened, what, January? It's August? I don't know. That's pushing that. I mean, that's like the lowest or, you know, the shortest time frame you could have. I I can uh, – my – now, Kyle Whittingham said if he's not 100%, he won't play him. I think he's going to be 100%. And, and here's the other thing. I actually don't think it matters. I think Utah could throw you out there in a helmet <laughs> – you know, four days, true, yeah. four days of practice, you'd be fine. You know, I mean, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like Oregon's offensive coordinator position. Like, I have all the respect in the world for Will Stein, and I know it's a harder job than we all think. But when you have Bo Nix as your quarterback, you you, you got a big head start there. You know, and I think Utah's got a great offensive line. They'll have a run game. Andy Ludwig, the coordinator, is a great coordinator. They just, Utah, uh, I, if I'm Florida, I'm a little nervous coming into that game. I think environment and the Utah machine, look out. Yeah, and, th- you know, this isn't a great Florida team. This is a Florida team that's not as good as it once was, losing Anthony Richardson as well. So I also, but I do wonder this, John, do you think Utah also, maybe they, you know, as you said, they're not going to play Cam Rice unless he's 100%. Don't you think they're more focused on winning the Pac-12 for a third consecutive season? They don't yes. necessarily care as much about this Florida game? So if he... I think there is more of a chance that he doesn't play against Florida. They go third straight. I don't know. I think it's hard to keep a competitor down and out. And here, Yeah, I do think Kyle Whittingham's, uh, the management of the schedule at Utah is going to be the most important coaching job in the conference. I think it's really interesting that they play everybody. They get no mulligans. They have to play Oregon, USC, Washington, Oregon State. Uh, they play UCLA even. They play everybody. And they have three of those on the road. And they're all week five and beyond. And so you're right. The management of the schedule becomes super important at Utah. But I just, what did we learn? What did we learn from Kyle Whittingham? He's a master chess player, gets a lot out of his guys. And I think if he has to MacGyver week one, he will MacGyver week one. But um, I'm not worried about Utah winning that game. I think Utah wins that opener. I just think they're they're tougher, and that is a Tough place to play. And as he said at Pac-12 Media Day, Whittingham did, you know, what, what do we got to do to get some respect around here? He, he, he likes he likes his position. He wants to be counted out and, you know, no one thinking about him. So I, I'm i with you. I think they beat Florida, but just something to keep an eye on the uh, next two weeks. Yeah, they play Florida and Baylor Oof. in non-conference game, back-to-back. So we'll see how that goes. All right, let's go to the phone lines. I want to know who you root for, and I want to know why. 
what, who did you grow up rooting for? Is it a team in the region, out of the region? You tell me. 503-417-7575. Let's go to Stephen, who is in Roseburg. Stephen, welcome. Howdy. Got to say it's the Chiefs. What, where did first that start? Super Bowl, first Super Bowl I ever watched was Minnesota and Kansas City. Len and Dawson. I've been stuck ever since. Man. Uh, and you went through you went through some lean years. Like you're really enjoying it now, though. Was it worth the wait? Yes, it was. We spent so many years with retread quarterbacks, and uh, nobody. I mean, even as far as I'm concerned, the the great Joe Montana never compared to Lenny Dawson. And when you got receivers like Otis Taylor, and uh, middle linebackers like Willie Lanier. Uh, I just I love those guys, and uh, even during the lean years, I was a Chiefs fan. So I'm really enjoying it now. How about Len Dawson smoking a cigarette at halftime of a Super Bowl? You know, you talk about different, different, different times. Drinking a Fresca, Stephen, and smoking a cigarette it halftime is, Super Bowl one. It's one of the most iconic pictures, like in sports history. Yeah, let me. Let me it's like Bad News Bears, Buttermaker drinking a beer in the in the dugout. Dave's in Longview, Washington. Dave, what's up, man? Thanks, John, for taking my call. I'm a lifelong Beavers fan. My dad went to school there. I went to school there. Um, last night on ESPN2 was 30 for 30 with about Bill Walton and the Blazers. Yeah. Makes me a real fan of Bill Walton. There you go. That's that easy to be a fan of Walton. I know that. You know, look, I've asked Walton to come on this show, by the way. Says he's not ready. The 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 implosion of the Pac-12. I said, Bill, there's only one that could come on the, sh- you know, help the help the public grieve. He said he's not ready to do it. He says when he does, we will be the first interview that he gives. So there's that. I want to know who you root for, and I want to know why. Let's go to Roy in Portland. Roy, what's up, man? Hey, John, man. You know I root for those Bulldogs, man. You know. How did that know, start? Uh, you know, I grew up in Athens, Georgia, man. So I got to root for the Bulldogs, man. Georgia Bulldogs, man. You give know. me an idea. Give me an idea because I remember watching Herschel Walker, Vince Dooley, those Bulldogs. But when you're in grade school, was everybody a Bulldogs fan, or what was that like? Oh yeah, everybody. If you live in Athens, everybody. You've ever been to Athens, Georgia? Yep. <laughs> everybody a Bulldog fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, yeah. I mean, that's what it's. That's what it's all about. You know. I got in an you know, Uber. I got in an Uber in Atlanta last year with a guy who probably was in your elementary school, and we started talking about Georgia, and he was like, this is just another game. Oh, Georgia's playing Oregon. Just another game. This, this isn't a yeah. big game for us. This is a big game for Oregon. This is just another game. And I thought, this is Roy in Portland right here. Yeah, I mean, it's just another game. That's what I'm, you know, that's what uh, another thing about the Pac, these, these Pac-12 schools moving to the Big, uh, big Ten. I mean, Auburn and Georgia is, just, is not just another game. This is a hatred. I hate Tennessee, okay? I hate Florida. With with everything that's inside of me, I hate the Florida Gators, okay? Um, but you can't manufacture that hatred, Oregon versus Michigan. You know what I mean? You can't Oregon versus Indiana doesn't, yeah. you know, doesn't do nothing. And fans, does, you know, I like to see the hatred. Even if I'm not a fan of the school, I love the hatred. I love Oregon State, Oregon hatred. You know what I mean? I like the Oregon-Washington hatred. I just like to sit back and listen to fans talk crap. I love that. 
that makes college football, if you're not a fan of those schools, even if you don't have anybody, you love to see different fan bases interact. That's what college football is all about, man. You know? so uh, A lot of passion. Yeah. I love that. A lot of passion, man. Hey, let me ask you, though, the last two years, Georgia just wins and wins and wins, and now you're seeing the bandwagon fill up. You must see a lot of Georgia fans who were not there five, ten years ago. Oh, yeah. You got you got the bandwagon fans, the, the fans that left when Mark Rick was there. You got the ones that said Georgia would never win. You got the ones that jumped to Alabama. It's, it's, it's a lot of funny Georgia, Georgia, you know, the ex-Alabama fans. You used to be an Alabama fan. Now you're a Georgia fan. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny to see that. But I want to say one more thing, too. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, John, the person that I think is really going to do well in the in the team in the in the new Big Ten is Washington. I mean, Kellen DeBorg, man, he coached in Indiana. Yeah, he knows the Big Ten. I really think out of all the teams leaving, even USC and UCLA, Oregon, I think Washington is going to do the best in the Big Ten. Going to be fun to see that. I do, I do think like we get you know we can lament the loss of tradition. The loss of the conference. I think it's sad stuff, especially this year with a bunch of really good teams and go, gosh, that's not going to exist anymore. But I think you can also look and go, okay, how will these teams go and how will they do? I think it's fascinating. Sam's in Vancouver. Sam, who do you root for and why? Hey, so well, let's just go to the why. My dad on both my teams. I'm an Oregon Ducks fan. My dad uh, used to tell me stories of uh, the late 70s when he used to take the Reuter bus from Portland down to the Ducks games for the Civil War and other ones, back when you couldn't even pay people to go see the Ducks or the Beavers. Right. Um, and uh, I'm a diehard Niners fan, so that's why I'm a big fan of yours. Um, my dad spent some of his childhood um, in uh, San Francisco um, growing up in the 50s, so he became a 49er fan then. And uh, the culmination of the Ducks fan, you know, my earliest memory was probably uh, – Bill Musgrave, listen to Jerry Allen call Bill Musgrave in the Independence Bowl in 89, yes. um, sitting in the Mall 205 parking lot with my dad. <laughs> um, and then, uh, of course, I was at the pit game, and I was 17 rows up from that corner, my dad crying in the aisle, sitting down, because we finally beat the freaking Huskies. So both go. my dad, and uh, he's no longer around, so I got to root for both of us. Yeah, I love that. I love that you have that memory. Yeah, Mall 205 parking lot. And dad in the aisle at Autzen Stadium. You got to love that. All right, coming up, we'll play some punch it audio. Think about why you root for the teams you root for. And, you know, who, who did that to you or who gave you that gift in, in some cases? Uh, we got so much more ahead. Great show. We'll talk about the great scrimmage that DJ Uyungalele had. Did he win the job? And reminder tomorrow's program, Scott Barnes will be with us in hour two tomorrow to talk about what's next for Oregon State. Are they close? Kind of feels like he wants to connect with the public. He's uh, reached out. He says he would love to be on the show tomorrow. And I said, uh, have at it. Scott Barnes, Oregon State AD, tomorrow. Coming up at 4 o'clock, we'll talk about the scrimmage. That's what people are calling it. DJ Uyangalele had a, apparently had a great scrimmage over the weekend. Uh, what did he do? Did he win the job at Oregon State? Nick Dash will be along to talk about it. We'll talk about Bo Nix and the Ducks as well. A lot still ahead, uh, including Punch It Audio, which we're going to do right now. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. 
you're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Matt Miyoko, NBC Sports in the Bay Area, covers the Niners. Big question at quarterback for the Niners, not just who's going to start and play early in the season, but what do the Niners have in Trey Lance? They haven't quite figured it out. Here's Mayoko. Punch it. The thing about Trey Lance is, honestly, I've never heard a bad word about him inside the organization. Not about his work ethic, not about uh, his football smarts, not about anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like the 49ers have soured on Trey Lance. It's just that they don't know. They have no idea how he's going to perform or how he would perform with an extended run at quarterback. And frankly, we may never find out because if Brock Purdy stays healthy, if he plays up to what he played at last year, neither Sam Darnold nor Trey Lance is going to get on the field. Interesting, and that's why the preseason, very important for Trey Lance. Very important to see who he is. A lot of people watched the Raiders-Niners exhibition game, preseason game, and came away thinking Trey Lance is the number 3 quarterback. I need a bigger sample size. I agree. I, I just think they don't know what he is. Meanwhile, Anthony Richardson says he can't believe that he was hearing the words that he will be the Colts' starting quarterback. Here's Anthony Richardson in disbelief. Punch it, it was just hearing the words, you know, because you worked for it. You didn't, I didn't know when the timeline was, was going to be. You know, I was just looking forward to uh, week one and just being ready for the opportunity and getting thrown in the fire, hopefully. But... You know, he told me, and I'm just like, like, wow, it, it really happened. So, you know, I'm thankful. You know, I'm blessed, and you know, I just got to keep working and just keep building on this opportunity. Hey, look, uh, Bryce Young, he's won Carolina's starting quarterback job. He was the number one pick. C.J. Stroud appears to be in line to be the opening day starter. He was the number two pick. Anthony Richardson was the number four pick. He won the Colts' starting job. Adam Schefter called it a rush to the rookies. What are these teams doing, Stephen? Why are they handing the keys to these young guys so early? You kind of got to figure it out now. I mean, because there's always talented quarterbacks now. I think the quarterbacks now coming into the draft are so talented. You have to figure out after one or two years if you got the guy. And I think it's okay. You're seeing that in San Francisco. Like, yeah, they have Trey Lance. They don't know. But they have Brock Purdy, who they know is pretty good. We saw that in Arizona uh, you know, years ago with Josh Rosen. Took one year and said, nah, we're good. We're going to go with Kyler Murray. I, I think now... It's so it's so important to get the quarterback correct, and if you can get that quarterback on a rookie contract, that's how you build your team. So I think it's so important to get it done and correct the first two years and figure it out. If he's not the guy, he's not the guy, and you start over, you know, from scratch. But throw him out there, see what he can do. And you know, you hear Anthony Richardson talk, John. I, I just love his demeanor. I love how he comes across. You heard that coming into the combine, how well he uh, did the interviews with teams. I'm high on Anthony Richardson. I really like what he brings brings to the table. And I think you have to know who your guy is, right? And some, I think some quarterbacks, especially in a college setting, need competition. But the Colts clearly know that Anthony Richardson needs a vote of confidence and a public one, and so they gave it to him. And, and, and maybe he's you know, head and shoulders the best player at that position or the guy that they're willing to go with. But I thought it was funny that he came out and said he was shocked. He was shocked. Well, I that, mean, after you know, one preseason game, it, it seems a little early, no? I, I think it's a vote of confidence thing, and I think they're just trying to say, hey, look, we're going to remove the question. We don't want the question hanging out there. And, you know, 
a Garter Minshew is is the uh, the backup now, and apparently they got a uh, long conversation with him, and they just said we're 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 going to make you the starter. They want to remove the question, and and I think that's it's more of a hey, I think he needs a vote of confidence publicly move by the Colts. Keep an eye on it. Jonathan Smith not ready to name a starter. Says there's pros and cons. What's he talking about? Oregon State coach, punch it. I mean, there's, yeah, it's kind of how you look at it. Sure, there's benefit on the leadership part, um, the amount of reps and timing uh, when you only have really solidified one guy. At the same time, competition, I'm convinced, pushes guys to be better. It's only going to be valuable. Often seasons, you're playing more than one guy because of different circumstances, injuries, and all that, and you want to be prepared for it. Look, I think you can dovetail the Anthony Richardson announcement with what Jonathan Smith is saying. Like, the Colts are going, hey, we want to put you in a leadership role now. Remove the Gardner-Minshew equation. Let Anthony Richardson blossom. Meanwhile, Jonathan Smith, he's got to keep his guys engaged. Because if he goes with DJ Uyunglele, as many people expect him to do, you know, you still want to keep Ben Goldbertson engaged mentally. You still want Aiden Childs to feel like he's got a dog in the fight, so to speak, and and will compete and stay engaged. And and uh, you know, we have found that at that position you need more than one guy, as Jonathan Smith points out. John, at what point though does Jonathan Smith have to announce a starting quarterback just to solidify the, the position and the leadership on the team? Is there like I, a, a week before, a I day think, before? I think we're about a week away. I think a week to ten days before game one. And he, he doesn't he plays a Sunday game in week one. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I'll start looking for it about a week from now to see if he names a starter. And meanwhile in Utah, Kyle Whittingham, uh, who's he going to start at quarterback if he had to play the game today? You've got obvious injury to uh, your starter, Cam Rising, who's coming off an ACL repair, might be ready for game one. Kyle Whittingham says the offense is not where it needs to be. Here's Utah's coach, punch it. Bryson Barnes is taking the majority of the reps with the ones, and uh, Nate Johnson is taking the majority of the reps with the twos. Now when Cam is at practice, which is not every day, but most every day, then he gets uh, a fair share of the ones in certain drills as well. Nate will always have packages that uh, accentuate what his skill set is. Right, Bryson Barnes right now, if we if we had to play today, it would be Bryson Barnes. Because we're not where we need to be offensively. You know, the execution wasn't as good as it needed to be. Uh, it was the first extensive live work, so there's no panic mode yet. But uh, we've got to see improvement two days from now when we have our second scrimmage on Thursday. Yeah, Kyle Whittingham, uh, you know, he's got Rose. Is it, is it, is it Brandon, Brandon Rose? And he's got uh, Cam Rising, both iffy. Looks like Cam Rising's at practice, probably not in contact drills. And he's got an opener a week. Is it a week from Thursday? No, two weeks from two Thursday. Two weeks, yeah. Man, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think that's an eternity, though. I, I really think he's got time. Let's see where they are. He's talking about two more days. Let's see where they are in a week. And uh, all I'll say to this, John, is you know I, I like to follow the betting market. That the betting number started at double digits. It was like ten and a half Utah favorite. It's down to seven now. So there are some concerns that Cam Rising will not play in that game. If it goes under seven, you should jump on it. No matter who I the quarterback that, is. I think that home field and Bryson Barnes. Bryson Barnes started a game already at home. I, you know, he's a talented Utah kid. I think uh, I'm not too worried. I'm just not worried about Utah, especially after the attrition that Florida had last season. We saw him in the bowl game against Oregon State, and I know, I know, I know. Anthony Richardson, a bunch of guys just said they weren't playing, but I think Utah in an opener at home against a Florida team that 
they probably are itching to get back at from last season. I'll take the good coaching staff, and I, and I will say they will figure it out. Let's go to Scott Van Pelt. He's looking at the tradition of college football. It's under fire, isn't it? Here's Scott Van Pelt. Punch it. I see a lot of people saying that it's going to – and there, there's going to come a time when the true greater-thans are going to look at the have-nots and say, why are we sharing our money with you? And I understand that point. But we've already got the NFL. And I, I think there comes a point when college football understands that – just to continue with Rutgers, they serve a purpose. Maybe it's a homecoming game, okay? But they, they are games that matter every other Saturday, right? Like they, Every Saturday, I should say. There are games that are important to the fabric of the sport that you can't just punt on all of them. Maybe I'm pie in the sky, am I? In, in thinking that it, it won't entirely go away. Uh, Scott, I'm here to tell you you are a little pie in the sky, but... I think what's going to happen, I think the next move in consolidation will be teams like Ohio State and Michigan turning to teams within their own conference and saying, why are we cutting you in? Why are we cutting Indiana in? Why are we cutting Rutgers? Why is Vanderbilt in the SEC? And I think that's the next round of consolidation. Keep an eye on it. Uh, Coming up, uh, we'll talk about the travel demands for Oregon, plus Nick Daschle will be joining us to talk about DJ Uyunglele. Did he win the starting job at Oregon State? How do the Beavers look? We'll talk about Bo Nix and the Ducks as well. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. I appreciate everybody who's here and listens to the show. Hour two should be on fire. You got the BFT statewide. Well, Jonathan Smith doesn't bring quarterbacks to media day. Now, he told me on media day that if he had a clear starter that was coming back and returning. It's not like a hard and fast rule. But he just, it's not something he's done in his time at Oregon State. Maybe he'll bring one next year. Maybe he won't. DJ Uyunglele, transfer from Clemson, has been on this radio show. And he's talked about making the transition, his leadership style, why he chose Oregon State, all of that. You know, here he is talking about why he chose Oregon State. Yeah, no, I thought uh, going when I put my name in the portal, I thought there was a there was a handful of teams that I thought were really good. That I thought I, I could be able to go play at and just be able to go to develop me and get me to the next level. And I thought Oregon State was number one on my list. I uh, love the way uh, how Coach Lingo runs the offense and Coach Smith. Um, Love what they do with the pro style system. For me, it almost feels like you're playing with the 49ers and like the and Sean McVay Rams when they had Jared Goff back there. So that was the biggest thing for me. I wanted to go somewhere. Where I want to play in a pro style offense, get under center, uh, do some play action pass, different run checks, and be able to just grow my knowledge of the football game. Look, he's got Jonathan Smith. He's got Brian Lindgren. He's also got the Ben Gulbrinson returning as a starter. Aiden Childs, the young guy, and Greg Biggins who is a national recruiting analyst for 24-7 Sports and a guy that comes on this show and talks about, you know, the high school kids and the community college kids that uh, that are uh, transferring and, and uh, choosing schools to go to college. He knows DJ well. And I'll never forget something big and said. He said he thought it was important that DJ got off to a good start and didn't have to look over his shoulder. Remember when Biggins came on this show? It was, I think it was in May, and he said, you know, well, here it is. But here's yeah. what we don't need. If you're a quarterback, you have to know that you're the guy, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to be looking over your shoulder. And, and it, he, he had Cade Klubnik at Clemson, 
everybody knew that K was going to be the guy eventually. And it seemed like almost from, from Columbus spring ball, it was already, okay, so how soon before he's going to be the starter? And I just, you can't play quarterback that way if you're a DJ. If you're looking over your shoulder, if you think, gosh, man, one bad pass, uh, you know, I'm yeah. you looking to the sideline, are they going to pull me out right now? And you kind of start to squeeze the ball a little tighter. You're not throwing the ball, you know, free and easy. Um, you got to be comfortable. You got to know that your coach and your staff believe in you. And you have to know that, you know, you have the confidence to, to make mistakes. Greg Biggins talking about DJ Uyunglele. Over the weekend, Oregon State had a scrimmage. Nick Daschle of the Oregonian had the report on it. Nick does a fantastic job covering Oregon State. He's joining us now to talk about it. Um, how, first of all, Nick, this team feels like the quarterback room is as good as Jonathan Smith has had it. That's the positive. The negative is there's some competition in there, and maybe Jonathan's got to work a little harder to keep everybody happy. You, uh, you, by the way, you inadvertently broke a little news there when you were talking. You said something about Jonathan Smith taking who he might take to Pac-12 Media Day next year. Beaver um, um, fans would like to hear that, that Jonathan's yeah, going to be around right, next right. year. Or Mount, Mountain West Conference Media Day or Pac-12 Media Day. That's one of the concerns, I think, is Jonathan going to be around a year from now. And, you know, that's just unknowable, but... But you said he talk, it. So is he ta- wait, wait, wait. Back up, back up. Has he talked about that at all, or has he addressed that? Like you know, or is he kind of deflecting that, saying I don't, I don't control that? That's pretty much the message now. I'm, I'm hoping you know, give it another week or so that that I can you know, find, you know, talk to him a little bit more about about that. I giving him a little bit of time because they, you know, this is a football season. And they don't really want to be you know working on what the future looks like, so. But but in time, you know, I, those questions got to be got to be asked, and whether they're answered or not, I don't know. But but getting back to the original question, which was, what how is Jonathan handling this, this quarterback room? Was that was that the question? I, yeah, yeah. Like this I, this room, it's an interesting room with Galbrinson, Childs, DJ. You have an interesting blend. All three guys, if you think about it, all grinders, all had to overcome setbacks, adversity, or injury. I mean, it's just a it's a very interesting combination. Yeah, you know, every time I talk to to Ben Gulbrinson, he he insists he's he's here win, lose or draw on the job. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess when the decision is is announced, and you know, if he's not the guy, we'll find out for sure. But I I haven't heard anything from anyone that leads me to believe that you know he's out the door if he doesn't win the job. So, and you know, based on what I've seen so far, and I have been every practice because, you know, some of them are closed. I haven't been a lot of them, but a few of them. So maybe Ben's just been great in those practices. But but the ones I've seen, DJ has been he, – he's the guy. I mean, he just looks like the guy. He Even today in practice, I mean, it was just like he's he, he threw like about a 45, 50-yard post to, to – to Anthony Gould, who'd who who'd beaten Jaden Robinson, and it was just it was it was just a nice looking ball that he threw, and he threw a lot of those Saturday in the scrimmage. And he just seemed to have command, and things just seemed to go right when he was out there. And you know, I don't want to say poor Ben, but it was like you know he had a couple of fumbles on some snaps on Saturday, and you know it was just it, it was just kind of. It was just clear who who the, who the guy was on Saturday. Now, as Jonathan will keep reminding us over and over and over, it's about each day, you know, stacking up those days and 
then when we get to the end, we'll take a look at, you know, who, who, who had the better, who, who was better during the entirety of camp. And that's how they'll make the decision. But I, it just seems hard to believe it's not going to be DJ. Give me an idea when you see DJ, you know, aside from the 40 yard post pass, is he completing the 15 or 18 yard pass? This, you know, the back coming out of the backfield. I, I noticed in the spring game, he looked a little out of rhythm on, on some of the easy throws. Is he, is he cleaned that up? Yeah, he, he doesn't look anything like he looked in the spring. I think in the spring, he was still trying to feel his way through things. He hadn't, you know, got in sync with receivers, but I think he's really put in a lot of work this summer to, you know, to work on the timing with receivers and, and really get into the fine details of the offense. I mean, the other thing that DJ brings, and I, I've seen this in practice, and they don't run it all the way out because, you know, quarterbacks, they don't want them being touched. But, I mean, when he's running when he's running with the ball, that's 250 pounds of a dude coming at you. And he, I mean, he looks like five yards whenever he wants it, pretty much, when he, when he gets out on the edge. Um, and I don't know that's, that's something they have on that roster other than DJ. And I, I, I got to believe that's a, that's an option that that they're they'd like to explore a little bit. Now, that won't be a big part of their offense, but just having that in your in your in your back pocket to be able to unleash in in, in games every once in a while. That that, that that's going to be huge, I think, for Oregon State to be able to run run him on occasion. You know, Jonathan Smith alludes to the idea that he might have to play more than one guy. Maybe he's talking about just college football, the potential for injury. But, you know, he did bring Jack Coletto into games situationally. Do you think he will try to get, if DJ's the starter, will he try to get Ben Gulbrinson on the field situationally? Or, uh, it, you know, is it is it a foregone conclusion that Aiden Childs redshirts? How do you see the other two guys if DJ is the starter? I think when he says that, you know, bo- you know he wants to get more than one guy ready, I'm trying to think over the five years. I don't think anyone has started all 12 games because there's always something, an injury or, or something that comes up. So if, from that standpoint, you want to have, you know, you want to have a, a capable number two and, and Ben's proven he's, 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 he's a capable, he's a capable starter. Um, I don't, I can't think of a situation, you know, where you'd say to give the ball to Ben and have, so as a change up, I don't know where that, now, Aiden Childs might – I can see them bringing Aiden Childs in for a, a series here and there up to four games in order to keep his red shirt because he's got, you know, he's got the, the RPO thing that he can do and and he can move around and, and he and he's a little bit different. He just he just needs to put on, you know, some pounds and, and look a bit more like, a, you know, a college, a college athlete. He's still somewhere between that 17-year-old kid and – and what a what a college athlete would look like, but but I can see them bringing him in on on, on occasion in a few games, just to get him you know, get him some experience and whatnot, depending on the situation. Now I saw you had a piece on the tight ends that you wrote about. You know, Luke Musgrave, obviously a a star there last year, although they didn't get a lot of games out of him. Um, what kind of depth do they have at that position? Because I look at the receivers, I see Anthony Gold, I say okay, he can run there, but they are. Again, undersized at the receiver position. You can get away with that if you've got some stud tight ends. Where are they depth-wise at the tight end position? Oh, it, it's it's as deep as they've been at Oregon State. Now, 
are any of these guys, Tegan Quitariano or Luke Musgrave or Noah Tongiai? I don't know that yet, but I think they all have potential to be. I mean, Jermaine Terry, when he when he uh, signed to Cal, he was the number one tight end in the country by well, I think it was ESPN when they were rating recruits. Um, and he, I mean, he looks like a, he looks like he's a he, he could be a wide receiver in a tight end's body. They'll they'll put him in a lot of different spots on you know flex him out, put him at tight end, put him in the backfield. He he's got a lot of things he could do. Jack Belling proved last year he can catch the ball and get downfield. And Jake Overman's at who's been a he's played 33 games during his career, but it mostly is a blocker. He's he's starting to get downfield too. And I I think with this group, more so than any of the other ones, they have the ability to get downfield and make plays 20, 25 yards down the field. Whereas I don't know if they've had that beyond say Luke Musgrave and. You know, had he been had he been healthy last year, I mean, who know who knows what what this team would have done last year with with a, with a healthy you know Luke Musgrave. So, I, I think this might be their best group of tight ends. It it, it remains to be seen if any of them are you know at the level of those three I had mentioned previously. But collectively, they're they're pretty good. Nick Dashiell covers Oregon State. You're listening to him here, Dashiell. Um, you know, at at the running back position. Oregon State had depth last year and versatility. Um, Damian Martinez is back, but Jam Griffin hits the transfer portal. Why did Griffin jump in the portal? You know, it's kind of a mystery why he left as late as he did, because it, and, and no one's ever answered that, and uh, we probably will never hear. I don't know. He, maybe it's just at some point. There there are rumors that he might be going to Coastal Carolina or his, where his brother plays, but Obviously, ended up at Mississippi. There's just, you know, there's four guys that want the ball, and and there's only so many opportunities to run. And with Damian Martinez looking the way he looks, I, I mean, I don't know the four guys are going to get a lot of touches. And especially, I think they're going to they love using Fenwick as that, you know, as that real banger in the backfield. And 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 Isaiah Newell was he's looked he's he he came on late last season, and he looks like he's picked it up from there. So. I mean, they got three guys that are that are pretty decent. So I don't know. Maybe Jam just looked at the room last minute and thought, "Shoot, see what see where else I can right where I can get who who needs a running back?" Because I, I don't know. Other than that, I don't really have a good answer for you as to why exactly he left. I'm trying to wrap my head around how much of a distraction all of the realignment, Pac four, Pac twelve stuff, the uncertainty about Oregon State, how it how it affects this season, how it affects recruiting. You know, you've had a couple of days to digest this since we last talked about it, but do you have a sense if this team will rally around it? Do you have a sense that, you know, are the young guys on the team all kind of looking out for themselves? Are they distracted by it? You know, And, and what kind of messaging can Oregon State itself give to kids when it doesn't quite know, doesn't know yet where it will play in 2024? Yeah, a lot of this is TBD. I mean, um, I, I have not noticed any any drop off in energy or or whatnot during practice. But I mean, those are the kind of things you probably would notice in a meeting room or you know dinner off the field. Guys just being distracted and not really knowing. I I, I haven't noticed any of that, but I I, I think the 
sooner Oregon State can come up with an answer, the better everything's going to be, depending on what that answer is. Um, you know, I know that I know that Jonathan had a Zoom call with the with the parents on Saturday after practice, just to you know, just to talk. I think more than anything, I don't know what was what was discussed, but I know they they had some sort of a you know some just to talk to the parents, <clears throat> players, and and um, you know let them know what where things were were going, but. You know, it's, it's got to be weighing on them somewhat, but at some point, I, I think once the football games start going and if things start out well, I don't think it's going to be a huge distraction. Talking to Nick Daschle about Oregon State uh, football. Uh, Aiden Childs, I, I talked with his parents. They, you know, they seem like they are locked in whether he plays or not, that, you know, as long as their kid's happy, uh, you know, they're happy. Uh, they've They've really got great perspective. I still think Oregon State's got to figure out where they are or they run the risk of, you know, a huge run in the transfer portal. Uh, But I think it's why, timeline-wise, it'll be really important for Oregon State to get a bearing here. What Do you have a sense on timeline? When do they need to know where they're going to be? Is this a, hey, before the season starts thing? Is it a, you know, Thanksgiving thing? Is it a January 1 thing? In your mind, when do they need to have a decision? I don't think they can wait till things. I think they got to have some. They got to know something by by the start of the season because if it goes in the season, then it just starts to be this constant drumbeat of you know information and what's you know what's real and what isn't real and you know I, I and and they're trying to put together a recruiting class for next year and I think they got to have some certainty as to you know where things are headed. Um, I think the farther you get into the season, it's 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 going to be difficult. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, you you're you're as tuned in on this stuff as anybody, and I mean, I I got to think something's got to happen in the next two weeks or so, or or it, or you know, it could get to be a, a distracting situation. I've reached out to the Mountain West Conference to try to just find out, you know, they've been understandably, um, I think, skittish about saying exactly who they're talking with. But I do know they've got their arms open. If Washington State and Oregon State want to be part of the Mountain West Conference, they would welcome them with open arms. The American um, Athletic Conference, Mike Oresco, being far more aggressive, they are putting on the three-quarter court press. They don't have the advantageous geography that the Mountain West has. They may have a little bit more media rights money. If a rebuild of the Pac-4 is not on the table, let's just say it comes down to, hey, you're joining a group of five. In your mind, a better fit in the Mountain West with the geography and the other athletes on campus not having to travel to Texas and East Carolina and Memphis and uh, and Tulsa and, you know, or and Tulane or do you take the money if you're Oregon State and and go with the American? I I mean I neither one is a great situation, but I, I think you got to try to figure out what situation is going to get us put us in the best position for five years from now when when everything gets blown up again. Um, I don't, I'm I'm beginning to think it might be the might be the American. Um, just because there's a little more, there's there's more eyeballs on that conference. It seems like just because it's more of a national conference. Um, shoot, I mean, it, 
I don't know. The, you know, the money to me seems like a wash because maybe they can make a little bit more TV money than the American, but the travel is going to be, will eat up all that money that they would yep. make off that. Um, Cause I, I, mean, I, reported, these, these... I, I had reported Nick that, you know, the average American school that from, from that conference, the average school got $7 million in media rights money. Mountain West was closer to five. Boise state gets like six and a half. But uh, very quickly, somebody from the American reached out and said, well, you know, some of the members are getting 12 and some of them are getting like five. And so, yeah, the average is seven, but it could be closer to 12 if it was Oregon State, Washington State. I mean, they're clearly like trying to uh, put on a good smile. And but I think you're right. Like you're you're talking about gymnastics and women's basketball and, you know, forget football for a second. For the other sports, it just feels like geography in the Mountain West works better if it comes to that. It does. It Although, okay, you look at baseball, for example, Mountain West baseball is horrible. And, and baseball is, is clearly a, a signature sport at Oregon State. And, again, baseball in the big picture isn't going to make you all the money, but that's what gets Oregon State fans excited. In order in playing in the Mountain West, man, it's, it's, not, a good, it's not a good conference for baseball. So that that's one that's one to kind of consider and basketball would be you know the mountain west would be a, a good conference to go to but yeah it's uh, i mean as i keep telling people the situation they're in now there's no there's no option out there that's as good as the one they're in now so you got to find what's the next best one because what they have now is as good as it as, as, it, as it's ever going to be at least for the next five years Absolutely. Nick Dashiell, I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Good stuff from Dashiell. Leave it here. You got the BFD. Well, that was good stuff from Nick Dashiell talking about DJ Uyunglele. Anna's popped into the studio. She's pulling up a stool, and she's going to be joining us. Uh, you're not, you don't want a stool? You're going to stand? This is going to be like work if you end up standing. Um, I was uh, on the phone during the commercial break with the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department. Uh, Really sad story uh, that has developed here in the last uh, couple of days as, you know, people who are used to the river and cooling off in the river know, Anna, you know this from all your time as a uh, news anchor and reporting on stories, but people um, will jump off structures of the Clackamas River and into various bodies of water around the state of Oregon. And uh, it always happens that uh, there is tragedy every year. And former Oregon Ducks running back Herman Ho-Ching drowned in the Clackamas River um, just a day ago. And I was talking during the commercial break with um, a sheriff's deputy at the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department. And he was just sort of um, reiterating with me that, um, you know, Herman was swimming with family, had been jumping off a water intake facility, a treatment plant. There's kind of an area there where people kind of play in and around the structures in the river. And he had jumped off it several times. The last time he did it, uh, he did not surface. And, um, you know, somebody called 911 when he did not surface. That activated a marine rescue and Clackamas County Water Rescue, first responders, law enforcement, sheriff's office, fire agencies, all on the scene. Um, unsure how long he was in the water, but he was pulled from the water. They performed life-saving measures. Um, 
and he did not survive. And uh, Herman Ho Ching, uh, Ducks fans may remember him as a power runner uh, who was a really popular player during his era, um, is dead at the age of 44. And every year, um, the water, it's a, it's a little more chilly than people are used to. There's, there's a shock possibility when you jump in the water. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't expect people who are swimming in the river in that area to be wearing a life jacket. Um, I just wouldn't. And even the sheriff's deputy I talked with said, you know, people don't traditionally wear life vests when they go swimming in that area. But he, he wanted people to be mindful of where they're recreating and especially mindful to keep an eye on each other when you're in that situation. Yeah, I mean, first of all, my thoughts, um, my heart just goes out to that former player and his family and the people who were there that day because I've been there as a news reporter standing along the banks of a river or some other body of water locally where someone has drowned. And it's just super important for people to remember, like, we love, you know, Washington and Oregon and all of our waterways. We recreate in them. We enjoy them. But they're not swimming pools. And it's, uh, it's I, I just can't even tell you the number of times that I've been standing there covering something that didn't need to happen. And there's so many variables when it comes to our rivers, lakes, and oceans that people don't think about. I mean, just the mere fact that, you know, he had, like you mentioned, several previous jumps in that were fine, but we don't know what happened on the one in which yeah. he didn't resurface. Did he hit his head on something? I, on the I, way yeah, in? I asked the sheriff's you know? deputy that, and they said they are not sure that at this point the coroner's office has got sort of control of the investigation. They'll, they have not yet released a cause of death. We don't know if it was shock. We don't know if he had a cardiac incident. We don't know if he... Um, you know, did he strike his head? He he said he would be surprised at that area, the depth of the water in the area, if if in fact he did strike his head on mm-hmm. something. But again, there's a lot we don't know, and a tragedy mixed up into the middle of it. But I know you always say that, like you used to go to work on the weekends, and we'd have a heat wave like we're having right now. Yeah, and you would know two things. There were two stories that you were going to report on. One would be there was a uh, a drowning or an accidental death around a body of water. And the second one would be people who are living in a two-story or three-story or multi-story dwelling having a young child push on a screen that was open because people who don't have air conditioning are opening a screen and the child pushes on the screen and falls out from the third or fourth-story window or second-story window. Those were the two stories. Yeah. Yeah, like clockwork, um, to be honest, when the weather heats up. And so just, I know, my kids, our kids think that I'm crazy because it's like even if we're just walking on a boat dock or something i will insist that the seven and the nine-year-old have life jackets on and they think i'm crazy too but they abide by it now because the thing is with our rivers and lakes they're not clear so the minute somebody goes under the surface if they don't have a life jacket on you can't find them you can't see them once you go under under the water if you've ever opened your eyes in any local lake or river you there's no visibility and so you always have to guard against you know the idea that somebody might go under not have the ability to swim be unconscious let's say our kid slips and falls on the dock and hits their way hits their head on the way into the water people think well it's not real you know deep at the boat dock 
but it's it's deep enough for something terrible to happen like that so it's just it breaks my heart it makes me think of spencer webb and what happened to him obviously because of the oregon connection when we were talking about it earlier today and um just be careful guys out there i know it's hot i know we're all trying to cool off but uh, like the sheriff's uh, deputy said, have the buddy system, keep an eye on each other, knows who's out of the water, who's in, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think uh, in the end, like, you know, you know me. I mean, I, I lost a couple of friends, close friends, to drownings in, when I was young, and I'm the same way. I mean, with our own kids, I'm just, I'm a little bit skittish around water, and when I hear stories like this, I um, my heart sinks because... You know, we talk about even last last summer, uh, Spencer Webb, it was, you know, this is a vibrant, young, 22-year-old person. And uh, Herman Ho Chang, people will remember him running people over, like just pile-driving them, like a mm -hmm. power run. Like he right. was like a physical force. Yes. And so when you think about people like that, and in the Spencer Webb case, we're talking about somebody who was climbing on the cliffs, in you know unseasonably hot weather, looking for a pool of water to jump into, was with a friend. I spoke to the friend who was with Spencer Webb, and they were climbing, and the friend said to Spencer Webb just before he slipped, watch your footing, it's slippery. And the next thing he heard was Spencer slipping, and as he turned, he said they locked eyes. And the, there was a horrified look on Spencer's face that he had realized he had misstepped, and was about to have a fall and you know at that point you're just uh, at the whim of gravity and the rocks below and in in the case of of uh, Herman and uh, a 44 year old uh, former Oregon football player um, not a good ending either well and you know the other thing to bring up as long as we're talking about it is a lot of people are out now doing floats down the river like the Clackamas River I think it's the Carver boat ramp, the Barton float, whatever that is, that's really popular. I've never done it. I've only been there as a reporter to cover the drownings. I know that sounds terrible. But everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be so fun. Let's go out on uh, rafts and floaties, and we'll just float the river like it's no big deal. But things can go wrong on that river, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, like uh, one of the things I saw is I, I grew up going to a um, – I grew up going uh, in a place where, um, you know, I grew up in a college town. It was hot. You know, it was hot in the summer, and people would go tubing. And I just saw some kids that were even friends of mine who did some ridiculously stupid things when they were tubing. They were jumping off things. They were tying the rafts together. I saw one. I had one friend who tied a cooler that contained beer. He tied a rope to it, and he had it on a tube, and... He's going down the river with this cooler tied around his ankle. Well, the cooler falls off the tube. And all of a sudden, he's got this anchor that is filling with water yep. around his ankle. Exactly. And, you know, I just kept thinking, if that thing catches on a branch yep. with the with the current the way it is, yep. he, he's going to be dragged underwater like uh, like he's a lure. I know. Like, uh, yeah. It's just stupid. I just had a friend, a mom friend of mine. I mean, these are like... Well-educated people in their 30s, and I'm not going to say her name because she would be mortally embarrassed here, but it, like people in their 30s who were like, hey, let's go do that float. I hear that that sounds like a good time, and I wish that I had talked with her beforehand 
because she told me this harrowing story about how their life rafts or their tubes were popping um, on the river. They encountered rapids, which they didn't expect. Um, and one person's, you know, they were all tied together, yeah, so that's mistake, a problem. Mistake. And yeah. then one person gets hooked on something, and they wind up like off off their floaty, which is deflating. And there were some moments where it was really hairy for them twice during that, you know, three or four hour long float. And then you mix in alcohol and judgment and impaired judgment. And I'm telling you guys, I know we sound like, you know, old, Debbie and old David Downer yeah. here big time. But I'm willing to sound like that if I can just save one life. If it's one person, you okay, know. Okay, so what do you recommend? What do you Are you saying people shouldn't go in the water? No. Or are you saying what? What are you saying? I'm just saying, like, no, like, do your research, first of all, about where you're going. Don't just, like, up and go somewhere. And, you know, don't just up and do the float without asking around about that stretch of waterway and the potential risks that it presents that you don't know about. Common sense. Yeah. I, I'll tell you, and this is part of, you know, I was five years old. When my best friend drowned and I was 17 when my other friend drowned and it was uh, tremendously Im it impacted me tremendously. Like I did not like to be around water as a kid. I didn't want to be around water. Water killed people. And um, and I always went into every setting going, what's the worst thing that could happen here if it involved water? Yeah. And I got to tell you, like. There's part of that that was a little traumatizing. It's a little disturbing to be like a 14-year-old kid and your friends are all having fun jumping in the pool and you're like, hey, everybody, let's go feet first. Nobody's diving head first here. I don't care that the pool's – like everybody go feet first. Like yeah. I was just terrified. I don't want to lose any more friends. And, yeah. and, and I still, to this day, when we are around water with the kids – I've never told you this. Like when I go into any setting with the kids, I say to myself under my breath, nobody dies today. Like, I literally am watching and thinking of every possible scenario that could go wrong. And, and a lot of it's just common sense. Like, I look at the area where the kids are getting in the water, even if it's at the ocean. And, you know, I look at the waves. I, I tell the kids, don't turn your back on the ocean. I try to stay within, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 15 yards of them if they're playing in the water. And it's, you know, that's kind of yeah. what the sheriff's deputy during the commercial break, I said to him, what do you want people to know? And... He kind of had a similar response in that he was kind of just saying, like, hey, you know, you people go to the water. Yeah. It's super hot. And he said, and people go to the water. They're they're drawn to it. And he said, you know, look, he just said, be mindful of where you're recreating and keep an eye on each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just at the ocean last week with our kids and I was, again, super vigilant. And I they thought, again, they think I'm crazy. Because I'm like, you cannot go up past your thighs. Because they, they, I didn't have their life jackets. And normally I even make them wear life jackets when they're just splashing in the waves at the ocean in like ankle deep water. I know that sounds crazy. But again, sneaker waves, been out there to cover drownings. And so I didn't have their life jackets. So I watched them like a hawk and did not allow them to go really a, much above their knees. Because I just don't want that errant wave to come and take them away. And I was having conversations with them all week about, okay, what do you do if you get caught in a riptide? Just terrifying you them. Know, swim. <laughs> you know, yeah, I just, know. Yeah. I know. But. Yeah. but it's part of, uh, I think, part of the curse of being in the news business 
is like, Stephen, are we terrifying you? Like, part of the curse of being in the news business, like, I'll say to Anna, hey, maybe I should get my pilot's license. And she'll be like, turn on the news today. I'm anchoring the news, and some guy just crashed his plane on I-5. Like, every, you know, like every scenario, you kind of look for <laughs> what's the worst that could happen. I know. You know, it's not it's not it's not like you have a police scanner going in the living room. You have it going in your head. You know, Stephen, are we scaring you from going near the water? Uh, I'm already kind of scared of going into the water, so not really scared me more than I already am scared. But I, I'm with you. Like, uh, you know, when we go to any type of river or anything, like the kids got to get life jackets on, and we're very uh, very conscious that my wife is very good around the water, so. They know all the rules, and uh, I just tell them to be safe, and because uh, I can't, I can't really swim to like save them. Like that's the thing. Like I'm an okay swimmer, <laughs> but I couldn't save anybody. I'm, I'm just trying to save myself. So yeah. you don't uh, want to be in that position. No. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, you're already scared. I'm already scared enough of the water. It's not scaring me anymore. Well, in the number of times I've covered stories where it's like the kid wound up okay, or the parent jumped in to try and save them, and the parent got parent overwhelmed, yeah. and then they both died. I mean, I'm telling you guys, this is. Life and death stuff, so just and I, and bear I think, with us. I think it's okay to go to the river this. and cool off. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I don't – where it gets dicey for me is when, you know, you're jumping off things or you're climbing on cliffs or you got kids involved and you don't realize that there's a current there. And I know that – I get it. The current has slowed down considerably in the summer months. The water's warmed up. But it's still surprisingly – strong in some places that it, it will surprise you yeah and it's the, the it's the visibility factor if something goes wrong it is not a pool your body is difficult to see there's no visibility under the surface of the water just think of it as a black abyss because that's essentially what it is if people are going in and trying to look for you under the water or look for somebody who's in trouble all right we're going to cheer things up here in the next segment all right, Anna's got the five at five. Are you going to do the five at five? Yeah. You, are you rusty? I'm, no. Are you rusty? Steven's no been thing. on it, man. Steven's been killing it. Judah had one day where he did it. They were great. Is it that thing where I should just do it as poorly as possible so I don't get invited? Uh, I, I don't know if you want. You know, it depends. Do you want this job or not? We've seen some people sandbag. Are you pulling a James Harden on us? Do you want to earn all that money you're getting for doing the show? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Renegotiate. I will never work for a Daryl Morey team again. Oh, wait, that's a different conversation. All right, more still ahead. You got the BFT. Do you know that music? Can you name that band? Do, 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 do. Third, Third Eye, Eye Blind. Third Eye Blind. Look at me. Third Eye Blind. Sporting my limited 90s music Hey, I sent, I sent you a videotape earlier today that um, was like 10 seconds, a uh, former... A uh, community college friend of mine sent yeah. me a uh, video of myself in football uniform playing catch on the sideline with a uh, quarterback who was my friend uh, before a game. And uh, I want some game film. Yeah. I want to know. Like, uh, I, want, I need to see some game film of, uh, you know, old number 42 running around out there. Yeah, the back of you looks really cute. Yeah? Mm-hmm. You would have gone for that guy? <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, based on the back. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Based on the back of my jersey. Yeah. You notice all the stars on the back of my helmet? You know, there's What like, are those for? Yeah, I don't remember. But I also don't remember wearing wristbands. Really? That was kind of a... Uh, I gotta look at the video a little 1990s style wide receiver wristband move. You are, but you're wearing the wristband like way up by your elbow. Yeah, it's kind of where the cool guys wore them. <laughs> Is that where know? they wore them? Yeah. Cool guys 
wearing wristbands. Um, <laughs> a lot of forearm protection there. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I played with a I played with a lot of physicality. Okay, that that was my game. Um, I but I think it was interesting. Like, how much more film kids today who are playing sports have? Uh, Stephen, like, give me an idea. Like, your kids. Let's say your kids go off and they play college basketball, high school basketball. Have so much more film available to them today because of technology that, like, I kind of wonder if we're going to have time. By the way, how many pictures, Anna, do you have on your phone right now? Like, uh, 100,000 photos? When are we ever going to have time to look at any of these photos? We're so busy taking them. There's no, like, nobody's doing photo albums anymore. I don't know why we're all eating up storage. Like, planet Earth will one day implode because it just says, I can't take any more storage. Everybody, it, we're all done with everybody snapping pictures. Like you, you don't do like a photo book. No, we so we, we did. So like when we went to Lake Tahoe, my wife, Coach Vaughn, she made a she made a photo album book of all the f- pictures we took, and then we gave it to my parents. Awesome. Are they looking at it? Are oh, they, they too busy taking photos? No, they love it. They I think they See? look at it every day. That requires one yeah. adult in the household p- to be responsible. What's wrong with us? <laughs> well, it's definitely not See, me. It was her idea. Yeah. See. You just need one, let's, one person. Let's play a game. Who's a grown-up? Let's play a game, Anna. What? How many photos you got on your phone right now? I go to your tell you. go to your photo. I want to know the number. It's sick. What is the number? How many photos? Let's take a picture. We got to pose for a picture. Can everybody get a picture? How many how many photos you got in there? Photos and videos complete. Yeah. It's gross. <laughs> she's the, she's avoiding this, Stephen. You notice this? Yeah, stalling, yeah. stalling. How stalling. how many? pictures do you have what's the over at, what's the over under well i'll tell you how many 10, let's see if steven can guess i have twenty four thousand and thirty five. <laughs> okay twenty four thousand and thirty five i have no time to look at these photos if i looked at every photo how many days would it take me to look at them anna how many photos do you have let's see if steven can guess even guess guess anna's got to have more than that i would say thirty one thousand Nope. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. Uh, I think it's over, I think it's over a hundred thousand. Am I right? No, it's under hundred. <laughs> Eighty-eight thousand. Eighty-eight. Seventy-five. Eighty thousand three hundred thirty-eight. <laughs> oh, it's gross. That is like I take a lot of pictures. In in the future, we're gonna have that TV show Hoarders. It's not a digital gonna, hoarder. It's not gonna be about your house. It's gonna be like, give me your phone. Oh, this is disgusting. And, you know, why are you keeping all those photos? Because I love my children more. But there's, yeah, there's no way to look at them, though. What are you going to do? Sit around when you're 80? I look at them all the time. Thumb through them? You know? Well, quality over quantity. That's my motto. Here's when we went to Target. Here's where we were in the car. We got an ice cream. Here's where we, you know, I don't know. I know. I have a problem. There's got to be, there's got to be a group for that. Yeah, but yeah, they like Digital Hoarders Anonymous. Do you remember that one time we ran into this group that was in a bar? And <laughs> I, need, I need a little more they, <laughs> specifics than that. They were reference librarians. Oh yeah, those people. <laughs> we go into this bar setting. Well, it's part of a game that we like to play whenever we're like on a date night or something when we see a group of people. You know, feel free to play along if you guys are ever on a date night, but it's like we like to try to guess how those people are associated. Yeah. What are they? What are, are they? Are they coworkers? Are they family members? Especially if they have lanyards around their neck and some kind of indecipherable 
badge. Yeah. What industry do they work in? Why are they gathering? Yeah. Why? Is the game. Yes. And there was no way we would have guessed this for these people. We've had a couple of really good ones because one time we were playing this game and it was a bunch of ladies. It was was San Francisco. San Francisco Hotel lobby. Ladies, mid. 50. Yeah. 50 ish. Brunette. Glasses. You know, maybe um, hasn't been working out as much as she w- should. You know, kind of, you know, not real fit. So, like, the fitness industry was out. The health industry was out. And so I said nurses. Apologies to nurses everywhere. Jeez. I said nurses, though. Like, I didn't think it was personal trainers. And <laughs> and they said, no, no, not nurses. It ended up being the Romance R- Novel Writers Association. It was a bunch of ladies writing Harlequin novels. Waiting for Fabio to come through the door with a pizza. They were waiting for pizza. They were waiting for <laughs> yeah. like a stack of like 10 pizzas to be delivered to their hotel oh, lobby. He came through the lobby with long flowing hair. All right, so we play that game. Yeah. So we're in this bar, and we can't for the life of us figure out with this group. It, they were a little nerdy. They, you know, there's a lot of glasses. They By were, the way, yeah. the romance novel, Stevens, John can't help himself in a situation like that. <laughs> Once he figures out who these people are, he just has to mess with them. So every time we got on the elevator with this group of women, <laughs> he would turn to me and he'd, be go, he'd go, can you believe Danielle Steele's talk was so good? It was so good. And just totally sell it. And they're all looking going, she's here? She's here? Why is she here? But these reference librarian people, oh yeah, they were all about digital storage. Yeah, they, this was not like the reference librarian at my library. They were talking about digitally storing photos and archiving things yeah. and historical footage. And I, I just want to give like all my devices to these people and go, hey, sort this out for me because it's a mess right now. My between my phone and all these you know different thumb drives and everything, it's just yeah, you know, you need that help, Anna. I do. You're a hoarder. That group, though, they were like, those were the kind of people that go in and correct Wikipedia entries just for fun. Yeah. You know? Well, like in their spare time. They were in a bar on a Friday night. They uh, looked like a blast talking about the Dewey Decimal System and how it had gone digital. Uh-huh. Yow! Uh, yeah. All right, coming up. It top, was amazeballs. Top of the hour. Uh, <laughs> amazeballs. <laughs> top of the hour. We got the five at five coming up, but once you here for it. Anna's all fired up. Going to bring the heat. She says, I don't think you need to bring the heat, okay? It's a little warm in the studio. I don't mind it, though. I like feeling like I'm working, you know? It's like a sauna in here. How hot do you think it is in here? Give me an estimated temperature. Like 99 degrees. You think it's 99 degrees in here? Plus humidity. You think so? Yeah. In the studio? It's hot. It's hot in here. I need to get a... I don't don't know how... These are not favorable working conditions. I like it. I don't mind it. I'm going to file an OSHA complaint. (laughs) Talk to your boss. (laughs) I wasn't even sitting on a chair earlier. I came in. (laughs) This is how bad it is. This is what happened. You didn't show up for like four days of work. Yeah. Show moves on. So I came in. There was no chair. So I did the last segment with my headphones on, kneeling on the ground in front of you (laughs) like a serpent. (laughs) Should have snapped a picture. Oh, wait. I got 40,000 photos already. It's okay. Just share them to our shared family icon. Yeah. Let me do that. You know, someday when I'm 90, yeah. 
I'm going to go, let me go through these 140,000 photos that we've taken. Number one, number two, number three. Yeah. You know, they'll that's where they'll you. find me. They'll last you till you're 100. That's where they'll find me. What killed him? Well, he was looking at his photos. He was remembering how awesome things were. You know? Look at that Starbucks drink we ordered. <laughs> If we went back through your photos, it's so bad. Oh wow, I have four hours of concert photo, you know, oh, video. Oh, that's the worst. Remember that time we went to Khalid, who I, you know, who I only kind of like like a couple of songs, like you know, I recorded that concert. Why yeah. not just be at the concert? I know. What's wrong with people? I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know. We do it. We don't do it as much with sporting events. Yeah. But at concerts, I don't know why. Why do people hold up their phones? Because they can. And record everything at a concert. Because well, they can. But they don't do that at, like, you know, if they're at an NFL game, they're not recording at the whole game, are they? I don't know. I don't know. As you've, as you've pointed out, I haven't been to that many NFL games, so i got to go to more and Who's see what people Who's that lady holding up her camera? Oh, that's Anna. <laughs> filming the NFL game that she's missing because she's filming it. Okay, the worst part about this is years ago, we, uh, for like an anniversary or something, we went to go see YouTube in Seattle at what was then Quest Field, whatever it is now. Yeah. Bono, YouTube. Yeah, Bono. Yeah. yeah. There's no other YouTube. I thought you said YouTube. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. YouTube. Okay, the band. The band. YouTube. Right. Joshua Tree. That, those people. Rattle and Hum. Right. Those people. The Edge. And so, like, you know, they always try to upsell you into different things. <laughs> they upsold us into yes. getting, like, hey, we have a, they literally said, we've got a drone or some kind of camera that's floating around the stadium. Yeah. And you can get a commemorative photo. Which includes you. Which includes you, a shot of you in the crowd taken at some point in the evening. Yeah, awesome. Plus a shot, a great shot of the band on stage. And I remember it because it was it was like ninety nine bucks, and you yeah. got this amazing shot of you two inside the stadium. It's like the stadium panorama view, and then an individual shot of you and you know the person next to you in the seat. Like it, you just give them a seat number, and then they. They apparently uh, zoom in on you and take a picture. Yeah. And uh, we were really happy when this arrived in the mail, Stephen. Oh, the anticipation. Oh, it was great because this big package came from UPS, and I opened it up, and it was first, the first part was this huge panoramic shot of the stadium. Beautiful. And this setup in the crowd, and like you're like, oh, wow, feels like I was there. Oh, I was. That's awesome. And then the second photo is in a second package, and it's a photo of Anna and I. Enjoying the concert. Now, it's a photo of me. Enjoying the concert. Looking up at you 2 performing. And a photo of Anna looking down at her phone. <laughs> it was... <laughs> it's terrible. Oh. It's really terrible. Anna's watching her phone. She was looking at the 80,000 pictures she had. Yeah. She yeah. was like, do I have any more storage? I know. Probably. <laughs> I was probably clearing space because I'm like, I need some space to record this gotta, next set. Got to get this thing. <clears throat> And there's nothing, like, it was the same couple over and over at U2. Did you notice this? Yeah. Same age, same demographic, same blue jeans, Yeah. same shirt, over and over yeah. throughout the whole stadium. Yeah. That's it was like there's only two people who ever really got into that band. Yeah. I liked it much better when we were the outliers at the Khalid concert at Moda Center. <laughs> like, everybody around us was, like, 18, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. 
There was a whiff of marijuana in the air. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I might be the coolest uh, older person here. Uh-huh. And I had, there was one kid, there was one, you know, girl who was friends with our kid who was yeah. in the crowd. And she started to get in a scuffle yeah. with somebody. And she turned and she pointed at me and said, that's my dad. I w- I'm not the father of this child, as far yeah. as I know. Yeah. And I, I was like, you know what? Kind of a proud moment for me. That was pretty smart of her, actually. Yeah. That She's like, my dad's thinking. right here. Mm-hmm. She was about to get in a fight. Yeah. And she identified the baddest dude at the Khalid concert, which was me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's what she was There was going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. She wanted me in her corner. Yeah. As her pseudo-dad. Proverbial father figure. That's right. Everybody And everybody cool. Like, Mm -hmm. cooler heads prevailed. Yeah, we almost died at that concert. Uh, That's another story. It was a lot of pushing and shoving. A lot of pushing and shoving. I thought... We we were not (laughs) meant to be in that crowd. Uh, We were and weren't. No, we weren't. We were and weren't. We didn't belong there. (laughs) On one hand... I was doing crowd control. Yeah. On the other hand, people were passing out around us and peeing on themselves. That well, was not my idea. Of a I did time. help a couple of people get to safety that night. You know, I don't mind being the lifeguard, the the lifeguard in that scenario. Have you ever been at a concert, Stephen, where you feared it was going to get out of control, where you feared for a moment like something might happen and this is going to be too much? Uh, no, I've never been to a concert, so. Okay. So let me just uh, say that you're in an elevator with about you know, 14 or 15,000 people mm. and everybody's shoving and you realize there's only one way out and everybody's shoving the wrong direction. That's a bad feeling. And that was happening. And it was really hot and there was no water. And I had secured the motor center that I had known from Blazer Games who were making eye contact with me in the crowd and they were going, is everybody all right? And I was going, no, everybody is not all right. They, these kids need water. They're about to all pass out. You know? Are we convincing you to go to a concert with this story, Stephen? Is this no. helping your desire to no. attend a concert? Yeah. If you go to a, con- no. I, I I said this to you at that concert, Anna. It's like what it is. We were on the floor. We had, you know, we were with the mosh pit. Yeah. It looked way better to be in a seat. It did. And I was like, You've I will never, never sounded older than in that moment. Well, right now. how about today's show? What do we say? Don't go in the water. I know. Don't go to a concert. And stay off our lawn. <laughs> What's wrong with this We're show today? A barrel of monkeys. All right, let's do the five at five and try to lighten it up a little bit. Mm. Here we go. The five at five. The number one story, as Anna sees it, is not in order of importance at all. But Elon Musk is saying that Zuckerberg is the one that is actually turning down a potential Uh-oh. fight. Twist in the story. At the Colosseum in Italy, so he's saying that. After the two men had initially agreed to fight, Rome actually offered up, like, you know, Rome, just the city of Rome, decided to offer up one of the seven wonders of the world for them to fight in. But Zuck just didn't want to do it, according to Musk. That's ridiculous. Zuck wants to fight. So Musk, this is hard to say, Musk and Zuck, right? Yeah. Zuck and Musk. Zuckerberg and Musk. Sounds like a bad cartoon. So then I guess um, he, Musk offered to fight in Zuckerberg's backyard octagon. Did you know that Zuckerberg has an octagon yeah. in his backyard? See, that's a twist because Zuckerberg is saying that Elon Musk wanted to practice in the backyard octagon. Mm-hmm. He wanted to do a practice fight, basically feel him out and see if he was going to embarrass himself mm-hmm. fighting him. I, I tend to go, I, I, I hate to say this, I believe the Zuck. Zuck's saying, yeah, he's saying he didn't believe that Musk was serious about the fight. That he offered a real date. Yeah. Dana White offered to make this a legitimate competition for charity. 
in that Elon won't confirm a date and says he needs surgery. Mm. Speaking of sounding old. He's dodging him. I'll take Zuck if they ever do fight. This is a much ado about nothing. I don't know why. I, I, I love this story. This. I, I love this I story. I think it's a great story. I think, like, look, you know, it's it's got celebrity to it. It's got sport to it. Um, it's kind of like when, you know, people will go, who would win, a leopard or, or a crocodile? You know, like, we see that on TikTok now. Leopard against crocodile, whatever. We see these fights. So who would win, Facebook or Twitter? You know, that's what this is about. Well, Zuck's saying that he wants a real f- match with yeah. a real MMA fighter. Yeah. Well, Zuck, that's the real... F- I believe Zuckerberg. <laughs> I think I think Mark Zuckerberg will fight someone else before the Elon Musk ever fights. Do you so. think his wife is happy about an octagon being in their backyard? I'm sure their backyard is a little larger than a normal neighborhood. True. Okay. I'm sure she's happy. Things have worked out okay for Facebook. Let's go to number two. She could still be displeased about that. The number two story. If she is, number two. All right, so this guy, I guess he just goes by one name, like Cher. Neymar, soccer player. Yeah, it's really good. So he, details of his new contract with Saudi Arabia uh, are interesting. Some of his perks include a private plane at his disposal, a huge mansion with staff. I like how it says huge mansion. Your your cadence is, you got to pick it up. I'm sorry, okay. You're like, like I need your energy to come up a level here. Okay. You're slowing down the five at five. Am I? Yes, pick it up. Let's I go. I can't be like that every day. I've got a little cough. All right, let's go. With, so. um, huge mansion with staff. Not a small mansion, but a huge mansion. Um, $80,000... Uh, in a bonus for every win with Al Hilal. Yeah. Hilal. How am I doing? And then $500,000. It's not American dollars, though. I don't know what that symbol is. It might be pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what yeah, that is. You're off to a to. rousing start here. I know. Um, he gets 500000 some kind of currency, for every post. <laughs> Or a story yeah. that he puts on his social media that awesome. promotes Saudi Arabia. Well, he took that the money. That could be $200 or 700000 American dollars. I don't know because I don't know what that currency symbol is. Does so. he have to play on the uh, PGA Tour? Is that part <laughs> of this deal that he has to appear at a tour event? I don't know. Um, that, that last one is interesting to me, though. You know, he gets a bunch of money for every post or story. That promotes Saudi Arabia. That's why you got to watch when you have a celebrity posting. You got to you got to wonder: Are they being paid for the post? Always. Number three story. Go. Wow, you're ready to move on from yep, that. Yep, I'm okay. over it. Go. Um, this is so sad. So, ex NFL running back Alex Collins gets <sighs> in this terrible crash. Uh, former Baltimore Raven star killed Sunday night. Um, police said that his Suzuki bike collided with the side of a Chevrolet Suburban yeah. that appeared to turn in front of him. And the wreck was so violent, Collins was thrown from his motorcycle and died at the scene. Uh, the circumstances are still under investigation, but the driver of the SUV did stay on scene and remained cooperative. He played for the Seahawks. He was picked by the Seahawks. 
in the fifth round of the 2016 draft. Good reputation as a fun-loving, upbeat, positive person. Um, you know, I didn't... Every time I see a motorcycle accident, I think about how dangerous motorcycles are. And if you're riding a motorcycle, you already know this. People don't see you. The visibility that people don't expect to see you on the road. And people will cut off motorcycles all the time. It's, you know, maybe this is the public service announcement. If, if you are on the road, look for more than just cars. If you are riding a motorcycle, uh, God be with you. It's, uh, it's not the safest Thing to be in in a road, and I, I don't know. It's the theme of the show today. Number four. This is a very safety-oriented show. Yes, including this story: bunk beds at the Little League <laughs> World Series are out. What? Oh, I remember on. doing this story last year at this time. Bunk beds maybe for the five at five. Do you remember the kid Easton Oliverson? Oh, he fell out of the bunk bed. Yes, he suffered a. Fractured skull and a brain bleed when he fell from a top bunk inside the Little League World Series dorm complex in Williamsport. So out of an abundance of caution. They're removing all the bunk beds? <clears throat> they put all the beds individually on the floor during last year's, and they're going to do it again this year. The single one-level beds. All right. Well, I, I think, too, there's part of it that's like if... A kid isn't used to being in a bunk bed. I think it 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 is there is some risk there. If you're not used to it, you're not you know you're not used to the fact that there's a bunk bed five feet off the ground or whatever. There's there's a, a potential of an injury there. But he fell from the top floor when he was asleep. Oh, he did. Yeah, he was sleeping. He, he was just asleep. rolled off. He wasn't like fooling around. No, he was asleep. And he just fell. Yes. Like was there not a railing on it? I don't know. Ouch. I know. Poor guy. I know. So, no more right. bunk beds. I'm okay with that. No yeah. bunk beds. Cool. What else you got? <clears throat> Seatbelt story? You want to talk about the Tui family? Yeah, let's do it. Boy, this story the is really making side. the rounds. Remember how everybody loved that movie, The Blind Side? Yeah, it was a great story. Well, it's getting real ugly. So, uh, Michael Orr, the football player, has sued the family, claiming that they kind of tricked him. Not kind of. He says they tricked him into thinking he was adopted, but actually what they did was have him sign papers for a conservatorship, which meant that they had control of all of his finances and any money that they made from the movie. Like, everybody in the family got royalties, apparently, except for him, who the story was based on. Here's what Orr said about the movie and what it got wrong. I think it took away the hard work and the dedication that I created uh, from a child and going to school in the third grade, getting myself up, first one in the locker room, last one out. Uh, and I think the biggest for me is, you know, being portrayed, uh, not being able to read or write. Uh, second grade, I was doing plays and for in front of the school. And I, I think that's one of the when you go into a locker room and your teammates don't think that you can learn a playbook, you know, that weighs heavy uh, on someone, you, you know, and you have to understand. I understand that the movie has given me a position. I'm honored to have the position it's given me, but, you know, you have to understand yeah. before I moved in with the family, I was an All-American. Well, the family now is fighting back in court. Oh, boy. The Tui family? Yes, the Tui family. 
They're saying that he tried to shake them down for $15 million okay. recently and threatened them, saying if, that, if they didn't pony up an eight-figure check that he would plant a negative story about them in the press. So it's getting really ugly. Yeah. So sad. You know what I wonder? It's a good adoption story. What does story. Sandra Bullock think about this? Yeah. She won an Academy Award, as you might recall, for Best Actress playing the mom. Well, there might be a sequel for her. I guess You so. know? <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back. Oh, my gosh. Return of the Jedi. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't that, know what happened But there. wasn't that story, okay, you know, that sometimes when I am reporting a story. Yes. I, I know where you're going with this. I will be in the course of reporting it, and I'm talking to sources, and I'm going, this is a little bit too boilerplate. It's yeah. a little too stereotypical. It's it's Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Like, we know this story. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, you know, this generous, you know, God-fearing couple, white couple, taking in the poor foster kid who was at, without a home, but he's a sensational athlete, and... It's just a little too clean. Yeah. You know, that story was a little too clean. But And that's the thing is stories are never that clean, right? No. Reality. Life is never that clean. No. That's why I like when I'm reporting a story and there's a good twist in it. Or, yeah. or, or better yet, you know, maybe it doesn't have a perfect ending. Yeah. You know, it has a good ending, yeah. but, oh, and people go, oh, it could be a little better if, right. you know, of course, if it were a movie and were fiction, it could be a little better. Yeah. But real life is full of knots and gnarls. It's not, you know, this, you know, it's not this straight path that is mm-hmm. clean and pretty. Yeah. And that's why, you know, Michael Lewis, who who did Moneyball, wrote the original book, The Blind Side. Mm-hmm. And I went back because I, I have the book and I was kind of thumbing through it, looking at passages. And I was like, you know, it's really interesting. Like Malcolm Gladwell had the book, the book Blink, yeah, where he talked about walking into the um, walking into the museum, the uh, Getty Museum, and how the 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 expert on statues walked into the museum, took one look at the statue, and went, "Something not right about it. It's mm-hmm. too perfect. There's something not right about that story." You know, yeah. and and it, and then people are coming out and talking about it now. But it, the stereotypical, the perfect stereotypical tale. Yeah. It's a little too perfect. Yeah. So I'm not surprised there's some loose ends here. I am surprised it took Michael Orr this long to go public. He says he was busy with his NFL career. Mm -hmm. Do you think he would have more credibility had he come out immediately and said, this isn't the story? Because he does look like now he's a little bit of an NFL player who's done with his career, who's now going, hey, they made a lot of money on my name. I was entitled to some of that money. And it might it may very well be true. Like if I were sitting on the jury right now with yeah. the information I have, I would be like, he's entitled to something. Yeah. I but don't mind the timeline. You don't mind it? I don't. Steven, does it bother you the timeline at all? Um a little bit because he does have a book coming out as well. Ooh. <laughs> coming out or it came out or I, it might it might be out, but it or might just have just came out, but it came out in twenty twenty three. So I think he was okay. that's why that's where we've got that clip from. He was promoting his book, uh, yeah. when your back's against the wall. We need, we need to get him on the uh, show. Yeah. Get Sounds like you should show. get to the bottom of it. We'll get it. Yeah, we'll get to the bottom. We'll get the twoies on the show, too. I like to hear both sides of this. We will settle this. Get Zuckerberg and Elon Musk on here. We'll get it. We'll put the fight together. It is true, though. Like, it's a cautionary tale whether you're just, whether you're a writer or whether you're a consumptor 
con- someone who consumes writing, someone who reads. Um, when the tale is too neat, mm-hmm. uh, it is worth asking yourself, like, what what's what's missing from this story? What do the writer leave out? Because often there has been stuff left out. And sometimes as a writer, you leave stuff out because you don't want it to distract from the main storyline. Yeah. But there's a difference between that and leaving out key details. Like he wasn't adopted. <clears throat> right. It was a conservatorship and gave them financial control of an 18-year-old person who was headed off to the uh, NFL and let, left him cut out of the movie while the kids and the family all made millions on it. And they were Ole Miss alums, too. That's where he ended up going. Yeah. That, now, the dad, the Tui dad, has come out and said that the reason why they did the conservatorship was they were concerned about the NCAA. They were concerned about implications if they had adopted him from the NCAA. I don't know. I just I think they're going to have a hard time if this becomes a legal case. They're going to have a hard time with a jury because Michael Orr presents a very credible, empathetic figure who has made a life out of uh, you know a very difficult hardship, and the optics of this are bad. They look bad for the Tui family. Their attorney is also saying that they established the conservatorship to help him with things like getting health insurance, getting a driver's license, helping with college admissions. Hmm. <laughs> Ole Miss. Just win, baby. It just means more in the SEC. All right, leave it here. You got the BFT. I like that today's show has not centered on, you know what? The Pac-12 stuff. That's what. Uh, we haven't. We haven't really centered today's show on it, and and uh, I'm all about that right now. I think uh, I think I need a break from it. I think you need a break from it. I, w- I wonder if the uh, teams themselves need a break from it. Uh, coming up in the uh, next segment uh, of the show, the final segment of the show, I will take a deep, deep, deep dive on the questions, the key questions that the teams and the programs themselves are facing this season. Um. There's the question that everybody else is asking, you know, the obvious question. It's kind of, if you listen to the show and you listen a lot, you know on Pac-12 Media Day kind of what I tried to do with the show was I tried to make it very different than the other shows that were there doing the line of interviews, the car wash of interviews, so to speak. And I try to get the coaches and the players outside their comfort zone and talk to them about things that are not traditional. And... And I like that. I can tell when I have a guest who is is um, alert and engaged. And often when you get subjects for interviews that get the same question over and over again, a um, great example would be like politicians on the campaign trail. They not only are getting the same question over and over again as they go city to city, stop to stop, event to event, they're also prepared for said question by their staff. So they anticipate the question. They say, hey, you're going to get asked about this. How are you going to answer it? And then they prepare an answer together. And, they, okay, this said, uh, that first part was good, but maybe if you could make it more about this other thing. And they come up with talking points, right, to turn the questions into, into an advantage for them in their campaign. Um, and I think a great example of this was, you know, years ago when we had President Obama on this show, he did only one interview in Portland, and about two questions into the interview, I could feel him 
during the interview, I could feel him sit forward in his chair and go, oh, this is not going to be health care. This is not going to be the economy. He's not going to ask me about, you know, all the stuff that I was being asked about at every other stop. And suddenly we started having a conversation. And I love that. And, and so what I want to do in the final segment of the show today is I want to have that conversation with you. Because there's every, other, there's every other question, that the obvious question that everybody's asking of every program, is Oregon going to have an identity on defense? And then there's the real question that Oregon's facing. It's not that. It's not Bo Nix. It's not Bucky Irving. It's not even Dan Lanning related. There's a question that Oregon's facing this season that has nothing to do with the things that everybody's talking about, but I think it's the most important thing at Oregon. There's a question for Utah that is the most important question. It has nothing to do with Cam Rising, nothing to do with the quarterbacks. That's what everybody's talking about. That's not the thing for Utah this season. They'll figure that out. There's a thing for every school, and I have drilled down on it. In some cases, that thing to me is something that I thought about. And in other cases, I, I went to insiders, like at Stanford, and I said, hey, I don't get to see Stanford practice. What's the thing? Because everybody's looking at Stanford going, how is this new coaching staff, what's Troy Taylor going to do? And, and by the way, does he have a quarterback? Like That's the obvious stuff that he gets asked at media day. But there's something even for Stanford that is a much bigger fundamental question that is the key for Stanford's season. And I went through all 12 schools, and I found the thing, the thing that faces every program. And we'll do that coming up in the final segment uh, of this show. Before we go to that, though, it got me thinking about the other sports teams in our state and what is the thing that faces them. And I want to start with your Blazers, Stephen. Everybody thinks it's Damian Lillard or maybe ownership as the thing, the key to the Blazers. I don't think it's either one of those things. Like, yeah, the Damian Lillard thing needs to be worked out. Blazers need to get a good resolution. The uh, ownership thing is, is, a, uh, is a dumpster fire. Like, the fact that you don't have an acting owner is a dumpster fire. It's obvious. Everybody knows that. But to me, the thing or the key to the Blazers' future is Adam Silver in the NBA. He's got to get involved. And at what point will he get off of his, you know, whatever he's focused on and decide, hey, I better pick up the phone and find out what's going on with Blazers' ownership. Where do the Blazers fit into the plan for the NBA? Because right now they feel like they're not part of it. They're just kind of existing. They're, you know. They're a cog of the NBA enterprise that is existing in a vacuum in Portland while the league is making plans for expansion into Seattle, expansion into Vegas, worst-kept secret in the NBA. The Blazers are sitting in this place that is like, you know, somewhere between heaven and hell, and, uh, you know, they're stuck in it. And we all know that the Blazers are, you know, stuck in this position until Adam Silver goes, hey, you know what, um... Jody Allen, I'm going to force your hand. Or, you know, Burt Cold, I'm going to force your hand. Or, hey, guys, we need to kind of move this along. So I think the key for the Blazers is not, it's ownership, sure. That would that would fix things. That's obvious. And it's Damian Lillard, of course. This Lillard thing needs to be rectified. Either, either he's going to be with the team at the beginning of the season, going to be in uniform, going to be part of Trail Blazers, Inc., or he needs to go in another direction and the Blazers need to get a fair market trade for him. The Blazers are not a charity. They should not be 
you know, said, well, of course, we'll, we'll usher you to Miami and we'll take pennies on the dollar. That's not the trade. Takes no brains at all to make that deal, Aaron Goodwin. Takes no brains at all to make that deal, Miami Heat. Like, I can come up with lopsided deals all day long, and we could say, okay, we'll trade, you know, a bunch of middling first-round draft picks for Steph Curry. That works for me. Like, you know, it doesn't work to come up with a trade that, or deal that only works for one side. So Adam Silver getting involved. When does he get involved? That's the question. Because at some point, the league has to care about its franchises. And you got a Blazers franchise that is adrift. And you can say all you want that it's ownership, because it is. And you can say all it, all you want that it, this Damian Lillard thing is a cloud, because it is. But there are symptoms in, in the end of the NBA not being more involved. Roll up your sleeves, Adam Silver. Time to get involved. I don't know. Steven, am I spitting any truth? Should the NBA at some point, shouldn't they just say, hey, Portland, what's going on over there? I mean, I, I would, yeah, I, I would love for that to happen. I just, I don't know. I think the franchise would have to be in such a worse situation than it actually is. Like, I know it's a bad situation, but I think it would have to get very, I mean, even worse. Like, you think about, you know, the Donald Sterling whole situation and that whole franchise, you know, they hated that guy. They were going to go against him, revolt against him. I think that's what it would have to get to for Adam Silver to step in. So I'm with you. I don't know that the Blazers necessarily can, you know, end up being really good and being a franchise that have a lot of confidence in it until they get new ownership. But I don't know that Adam Silver can necessarily just step in and say, you need to do something at this point. There is a, uh, there's a way to do it without doing it. And Adam Silver needs to do it. And, and what I'm saying is he, if he wants to work the back channels, that's fine. If he wants to pick up the phone, have a private conversation with Jody Allen, that's fine. But there is a, um, you know, I was, I was raising alarm bells about the Pac-12 in 2017 and 2018. I did a five-part series on Larry Scott, why the Pac-12 was falling behind, why the Pac-12 was in trouble. It, it, you don't wait until it's imploding to say, you know, hey, it's imploding. The Blazers organization's in trouble, and it's part of the NBA. Adam Silver needs to get with it. All right, coming up, the keys to all and the questions to all the Pac-12 schools. I finally got around to talking and writing about some football today. It was, it was rather refreshing for me after all the energy expended in recent months sorting out uh, realignment and expansion and the influence of television on college football. Man, don't get me started on TV. Don't, you know, look, I watch TV, you watch TV. We all understand that television is driving uh, high salaries and the valuations of the franchises. I understand why. The owners and the leagues have sold out to television. I think it would be awfully tempting to not dive into those revenue streams, and they're always looking for revenue streams, and it's become their lifeblood. TV's become their lifeblood. It's why, you know, kicking off games at 7.30 at night, 8 o'clock at night, 7 o'clock kickoffs, people on I-5 at midnight, 1 a.m., families unable to take their kids to games. Don't get me started. Oh, wait, I am started on this. Yeah, I think about it. I think about it when I am on I-5, returning from Autzen Stadium, headed home, and I leave later than you when I, when I leave the stadium, and I accept that. It's part of the job, all right? I signed up for this. But I walk into the parking lot at Autzen Stadium sometimes after a night game or Research Stadium after a night game, and I, and I see Winnebago's that are parked out there because people have decided, hell, might as well spend the night. Like, hell might as well spend the night shouldn't have been a thing in college football ever. Like, you know what? We're in the parking lot. Game's over. It's 10, 11 o'clock at night. 
Uh, might as well spend the night shouldn't have been a thing. And I kind of wonder about older fans who do not like driving at night, and I wonder about families who don't want to have kids falling asleep inside the stadium uh, for some of those late-night games. And uh, and I think about my own childhood that was spent going to games that kicked off in the broad daylight, for crying out loud. And, and yes, television caused that. The, the, the entities themselves did not do that. Oregon, Oregon State, the other schools in the conference – they did not sign up and go, look, here's what we need to do. This is what will make selling season tickets even more difficult, but we'd sure like to try it. Let's try kicking off games on weekends at 7 o'clock at night, 7.30. Oh, further, let's let's not even give people the kickoff time until six days in front of the event sometimes. Let's let them see if they can plan that out. Let's see if they keep signing up and buying tickets. And look, the Pac-12 is not alone. Look around the country. Everybody's sliding their kickoff windows. The NFL is looking at a bunch of games on Saturdays, and you know they're going to slide the season earlier in football. You watch. We'll see regular season uh, college football games someday kicked off uh, in mid-August or early August. You watch. Watch what happens when the NFL starts to slide earlier. College football will go, hey, we need to get away from the NFL. That's what's going to happen because television needs it. They need the inventory. And yes, I understand if you work in the TV business. I look by by extension, I'm in this media game myself and I understand why it is that what it, what it happens, but it's ruined the late night kickoff thing has ruined the game for some older fans who woke up one day and said, "Oh, it's the third quarter." No, they woke up one day and said, "Hey, uh, you know what? Doesn't make sense for us to have season tickets anymore." It's uh, it's too big of a commitment. They're asking too much of us. And the athletic directors, I talk to these ADs across the conference. They get it. The competition of your living room, your sofa, your flat screen TV, not having to drive, that is a, uh, an awfully, uh, 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 that's a tough co- competitor that they're up against. So I get it, and I feel for them as well. But mm, kind of funny, but not funny, to watch what has happened to kickoff times. And certainly tradition rivalries we've talked about it all in the last couple of weeks and uh, so it was nice today to get back to actually talking about some football and i did a little study i did a little thing where i took a look at the biggest uncertainty that every pac-12 conference football program faces this season and i unearthed what i think is the key question the key question for each team now full disclosure a key question may not be the one that you're thinking about and is probably not the one everybody else is talking about. I don't do that, oh, everybody's talking about it, I should talk about it, too, thing. And I go out of my way not to hear other people talking about it, not to hear other people, what, what they're writing, what they think about it, because I don't want it infecting my opinion. I don't want it affecting my brain. And so I took a look at every school, and I'll go through them here, and I, and I came with the actual key to the season. Not the key that everybody thinks is the key, but the actual key. And I'll give you an example. Like Arizona. We'll go alphabetically. Arizona. On media day, everybody was talking about the defense. Because last season, Arizona was terrible on defense. Number 188 nationally on defense. Allowed almost 37 points a game last season. Terrible. And so what happened on media day? Uh, Jed Fish comes in. He starts talking about, you know, the upcoming season. And everybody goes, oh, you know, can you take a defensive step forward? But the truth is, that's not the key to Arizona's season. Of course, it's obvious. They want to be as good as they can on offense and defense, of course. Better on defense? Of course, yeah, they're not going to turn that down. But the actual key to Arizona's season is Jaden Delora. This is a quarterback-centric game. 
the quarterback needs to take care of the ball. And Jaden Delora runs around on the field, sometimes like he's playing in a video game, and plays like he's trying to get seven points out of every pass attempt. And I can tell you, I've talked to Jed Fish about this on air and off air today, and he, it's the look in his eye as I talked about Jaden Delora. He loves the kid, might have to kill the kid kind of kind of look. Like, loves him, loves what he can bring, but 13 interceptions last season, and some of them were killers. And when you put your defense that's, hey, admittedly not very good, back on the field in bad position, you are setting yourself up for failure. This is a league loaded with great QBs. Jaden Delore is the key at Arizona. He needs to be more consistent. Arizona State, very simple. Everybody's talking about the fact that, oh, they only had one fumble recovery last season. They need more fumble recoveries. Like, that's a thing that you can bank for if you're a head coach. The part, that's a symptom. Fumble recoveries, turnovers are symptomatic, okay? That's focusing on the result, not the problem. The problem is Arizona State's not very physical. Physical cause fumbles. Disruptive teams cause fumbles. Arizona State, not very physical. So the actual key for Arizona State is not, oh, we need more turnovers. The actual key is big bodies up front disrupt on defense. Kenny Dillingham's first year, it, all the focus is going to be on offense. But the actual key is, does he have big bodies or do they get pushed around? Cal, what's the key at Cal? Everybody's looking at the offense. Hey, uh, Justin Wilcox brought back um, Jake uh, Spavadol, the offensive coordinator, and he's bringing him back. This is the guy that held the position in 2016. They averaged like 37 points a game. Um, it's a good storyline, but that's not the key. The key for Cal is a fast start this season because Cal needs to make a bowl game. Justin Wilcox said at Media Day, I said, what's your goal? He said, to win games. Sounds like an oversimplification, but he's but he's he's spitting truth there. He's just trying to qualify for a bowl game. Keep an eye on Cal. They have a very manageable non-conference season, including week two. They have Auburn at home. Could steal one there. I have them at 2-1, and one, maybe 3-0. and oh. Don't laugh at me to start non-conference play. Keep an eye out. Fast start. Colorado, everybody thinks the key is Coach Prime. Not the, that's not the key. He's going to have the camera on him, and you're going to see a lot of Coach Prime. But he's not the key for Colorado. The actual key for Colorado was that guy that gave me that lethargic interview, his son, Shador Sanders. He's the quarterback. He's got to play well. If he plays well, they hang around and they threaten to go over on the over-under win total of three-and-a-half wins. If he doesn't play well, it could be a nightmare, and people could be looking at Coach Prime going, are you going to bench your son or not? That's the key. Oregon, what's the key? Everybody thinks it's the return of Bo Nix, new offensive coordinator Will Stein, maybe the defense. Uh, you know, everybody talks about those things, but not, that's, not, that's not the key at Oregon. The actual key at Oregon is defensive adjustment. It's Tosh Lapoy, the defensive coordinator. He's the key to me because I, I know Oregon can count on Bo Nix, but Oregon's two losses last season, puzzling losses, Washington, Oregon State. Huskies did nothing but pass the ball. Beavers did nothing but run the ball. And Oregon did nothing but fail to adjust. Tosh LaPoy is the key from Oregon being really good or great. That's the key. Oregon State, what are we talking about today? DJ Uyunglele, he's the key. He's an important player. But the Beavers are going to run the ball and they're going to play defense like they always do. Ideal situation for whoever plays quarterback. Uyunglele is a pivotal player, of course. But the key for Oregon State, is defensive leadership. They lost a ton of defensive leadership from last season, including Jaden Grant, including Jack Coletto. They've got to replace that. The key is Trent Bray's defense and the leadership he can get.
Stanford. Everybody thinks the key is they have to find a starting quarterback. New first-year coach Troy Taylor needs a quarterback. That's not the key. The key is Stanford's offensive line. They were decimated by transfers. Five starters left in the offseason. Five. Wholesale rebuild. Brought to you by Costco. Not a lot of experience up front in uniform at Stanford. And if they don't get it, it doesn't matter if Joe Montana's back there taking snaps. The key is the offensive line at Stanford. Will they gel? UCLA. Four-way starting quarterback battle. Will it be Dante Moore? Who knows? But that's not the key for UCLA. UCLA is going to be pretty good around that quarterback position. The key for UCLA will be winning on the road. It's tough to win road games. UCLA plays at Utah, at Oregon State, and at USC. Those three games are huge for UCLA. Can they win on the road? And usually it's experienced teams that do it. Can you win on the road if you play a freshman quarterback? That's the key for UCLA. USC, everybody thinks the key is, hey, can they get better on defense? We've heard it over and over and over again. I actually think they could be better on defense, but have a hard time getting the same results. Remember, they led the country in turnover ratio at plus 22. The actual key is the obvious key. It's Caleb Williams. He's got to stay healthy. Trojans are a force on offense when he's in there. They can beat anybody, anywhere, anytime with Caleb Williams on the field. And if he's not on the field or he has bad hamstrings, and keep an eye on the early part of the season with Lincoln Riley, if he has bad hamstrings, if he's not on the field, uh, USC's more ordinary. Utah proved that in the Pac-12 title game last year. Got to keep Caleb Williams healthy. Utah, what's the key? Everybody thinks it's Cam Rising. Quarterback, right? I just talked about USC's quarterback. Is it Utah's quarterback? I don't think so. Utah always finds a way. The actual key for Utah is the management of their schedule. They have the toughest schedule in the conference. They play Florida. They play Baylor in non-conference games. They play Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, USC, and UCLA. They have no mulligans. They face all the other contenders. It is brutal for Utah. So I think the key is how Kyle Whittingham manages the pace of the season. How does he rest, guys? How does he stay healthy? How does he put for that gauntlet? That is a big key. about Washington? Everybody thinks Washington's key is improving the defense. That's a solid storyline, and their defense could be better. But the actual key is Michael Penix Jr. He Remember, he rested his arm already during some fall camp practices. They're saying it's preventative, but this is the franchise quarterback who had ACL injuries twice that ended his college season. He had a joint injury in his sternum that ended another season. He had an AC joint shoulder that ended another season. He'd never played more than six games in a season prior to last year. The key is Michael Penix Jr. being healthy and in the lineup. If he's not there, Washington is not as good. How about Washington State? Cam Ward needs to be more effective. That's what everyone says. But the actual key is the first-year offensive coordinator, Ben Arbuckle. It feels like he is the biggest factor for Washington State this season. That offense was predictable and stagnant last year. Ward did not grow. He just looked the same all year long. There is not a more vital influence on the starting quarterback than the play caller. Ben Arbuckle is the key at Washington State. See how much more fun that was than talking media rights? I appreciate everybody who listens to this show. We're back tomorrow with another great show. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time. Just a good time.